Chapter Fifty One of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Party is nature too, and you shall see by force of logic how they both agree. The many in the one, the one in many. All is not some, nor some the same as any. Genus holds species both are great or small, one genus highest, one not high at all. Each species has its differentia too, this is not that, and he was never you, though this and that are eyes, and you and he are like as one to one, three and three. No gossip about Mr. Casaubon's will had yet reached Ladislaw. The air seemed to be filled with the dissolution of Parliament and the coming election, as the old wakes and fairs were filled with the rival clatter of itinerant shows, and more private noises were taken little notice of. The famous dry election was at hand, in which the depths of public feeling might be measured by the low flood-mark of drink. Will Ladislaw was one of the busiest at this time, and though Dorothea's widowhood was continually in his thought, he was so far from wishing to be spoken to on the subject, that when Lydgate sought him out to tell him what had passed about the Lowick living, he answered rather waspishly, "'Why should you bring me into the matter? I never see Mrs. Casaubon, and am not likely to see her, since she is at Freshet. I never go there. It is Tory ground, where I and the pioneer are no more welcome than a poacher and his gun.' The fact was that Will had been made the more susceptible by observing that Mr. Brooke, instead of wishing him, as before, to come to the Grange oftener than was quite agreeable to himself, seemed now to contrive that he should go there as little as possible. This was a shuffling concession of Mr. Brooke's to Sir James Chettam's indignant remonstrance, and Will, awake to the slightest hint in this direction, concluded that he was to be kept away from the Grange on Dorothea's account. Her friends, then, regarded him with some suspicion. Their fears were quite superfluous. They were very much mistaken if they imagined that he would put himself forward as a needy adventurer trying to win the favor of a rich woman. Until now Will had never fully seen the chasm between himself and Dorothea. Until now that he was come to the brink of it, and saw her on the other side. He began, not without some inward rage, to think of going away from the neighborhood. It would be impossible for him to show any further interest in Dorothea without subjecting himself to disagreeable imputations, perhaps even in her mind, which others might try to poison. "'We are forever divided,' said Will. "'I might as well be at Rome. She would be no farther from me.' But what we call our despair is often only the painful eagerness of unfed hope. There were plenty of reasons why he should not go, public reasons why he should not quit his post at this crisis, leaving Mr. Brooke in the lurch when he needed coaching for the election, and when there was so much canvassing, direct and indirect, to be carried on. Will could not like to leave his own chessmen in the heat of a game, and any candidate on the right side, even if his brain and marrow had been as soft as was consistent with a gentlemanly bearing, might help to turn a majority. To coach Mr. Brooke and keep him steadily to the idea 
that he must pledge himself to vote for the actual reform bill, instead of insisting on his independence and power of pulling up in time, was not an easy task. Mr. Fairbrother's prophecy of a fourth candidate in the bag had not yet been fulfilled, neither at the Parliamentary Candidate Society nor any other power on the watch to secure a reforming majority seeing a worthy notice for interference while there was a second reforming candidate like Mr. Brooke, who might be returned at his own expense, and the fight lay entirely between Pinkerton and the old Tory member, Bagster, the new Whig member returned at the last election, and Brooke, the future independent member, who was to fetter himself for this occasion only. Mr. Hawley and his party would bend all their forces to the return of Pinkerton, and Mr. Brooke's success must depend either on plumpers, which would leave Bagster in the rear, or on the new minting of Tory votes into reforming votes. The latter means, of course, would be preferable. This prospect of converting votes was a dangerous distraction to Mr. Brooke. His impression that waverers were likely to be allured by wavering statements, and also the liability of his mind to stick afresh at opposing arguments as they turned up in his memory, gave Will Ladislaw much trouble. "'You know, there are tactics in these things,' said Mr. Brooke, "'meeting people half-way, tempering your ideas, saying, "'Well, now, there's something in that,' and so on. "'I agree with you that this is a peculiar occasion. "'The country with a will of its own, political unions, that sort of thing. "'But we sometimes cut with rather too sharp a knife, Ladislaw. "'These ten-pound householders now, why ten? "'Draw the line somewhere, yes, but why just to ten? "'That's a difficult question now, if you go into it.' "'Of course it is,' said Will, impatiently. But if you are to wait till we get a logical bill, you must put yourself forward as a revolutionist, and then Middlemarch would not elect you, I fancy. As for trimming, this is not a time for trimming. Mr. Brooke always ended by agreeing with Ladislaw, who still appeared to him a sort of Burke with a leaven of Shelley. But after an interval the wisdom of his own methods reasserted itself, and he was again drawn into using them with much hopefulness. At this stage of affairs he was in excellent spirits, which even supported him under large advances of money, for his powers of convincing and persuading had not yet been tested by anything more difficult than a chairman's speech introducing other orators, or a dialogue with a Middlemarch voter, from which he came away with a sense that he was a tactician by nature, and that it was a pity he had not gone earlier into this kind of thing. He was a little conscious of defeat, however, with Mr. Momsey, a chief representative in Middlemarch of that great social power, the retail trader, and naturally one of the most doubtful voters in the borough, willing for his own part to supply an equal quality of teas and sugars to reformer and anti-reformer, as well as to agree impartially with both, and feeling like the Burgesses of old that this necessity of electing members was a great burden to a town, for even if there were no danger in holding out hopes to all parties beforehand, there would be the painful necessity at last of disappointing respectable people whose names were on his books. He was accustomed to receive large orders from Mr. Brooke of Tipton, but then there were many of Pinkerton's committee whose opinions had a great weight of grocery on their side, 
Mr. Momsey, thinking that Mr. Brooke, as not too clever in his intellects, was the more likely to forgive a grocer who gave a hostile vote under pressure, had become confidential in his back parlour. "'As to reform, sir, put it in a family light,' he said, rattling the small silver in his pocket and smiling affably. "'Will it support Mrs. Momsey and enable her to bring up six children when I am no more?' I put the question fictiously, knowing what must be the answer. Very well, sir. I ask you what, as a husband and father, I am to do when gentlemen come to me and say, Do as you like, Momsey, but if you vote against us, I shall get my groceries elsewhere. When I sugar my liquor, I like to feel that I am benefiting the country by maintaining tradesmen of the right color. Those very words have been spoken to me, sir in the very chair where you are now sitting. I don't mean by your honorable self, Mr. Brooke. No, 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 that's narrow, you know. Until my butler complains to me of your goods, Mr. Momsey, said Mr. Brooke soothingly, until I hear that you send bad sugars, spices, that sort of thing, I shall never order him to go elsewhere. Sir, I am your humble servant and greatly obliged, said Mr. Momsey feeling that politics were clearing up a little. There would be some pleasure in voting for a gentleman who speaks in that honorable manner. Well, you know, Mr. Momsey, you would find it the right thing to put yourself on our side. This reform will touch everybody by and by, a thoroughly popular measure, a sort of A, B, C, you know, that must come first before the rest can follow. I quite agree with you that you've got to look at the thing in a family light, but public spirit now. We're all one family, you know. It's all one cupboard. Such a thing as a vote now, why, it may help to make men's fortunes at the Cape. There's no knowing what may be the effect of a vote, Mr. Brooke ended, with a sense of being a little out at sea, though finding it still enjoyable. But Mr. Momsey answered in a tone of decisive check. I beg your pardon, sir, but I can't afford that. When I give a vote, I must know what I am doing. I must look to what will be the effects on my till and ledger, speaking respectfully. Prices, I'll admit, are what nobody can know the merits of, and the sudden falls after you've brought in currents, which are goods that will not keep, I've never myself seen into the ins and outs there, which is a rebuke to human pride. But as to one family, there's debtor and creditor, I hope, they're not going to reform that away, else I should vote for things staying as they are. Few men have less need to cry for change than I have, personally speaking, that is, for self and family. I am not one of those who have nothing to lose. I mean as to respectability both in parish and private business, and no ways in respect of your honorable self and custom, which you was good enough to say you would not withdraw from me, vote or no vote, while the article sent in was satisfactory. After this conversation, Mr. Momsey went up and boasted to his wife that he had been rather too many for Brook of Tipton, and that he didn't mind so much now about going to the poll. Mr. Brook on this occasion abstained from boasting of his tactics to Ladislaw, who for his part was glad enough to persuade himself that he had no concern with any canvassing except the purely argumentative sort and that he worked no meaner engine than knowledge. Mr. Brooke necessarily had his agents, who understood the nature of the Middlemarch voter, 
and the means of enlisting his ignorance on the side of the bill, which were remarkably similar to the means of enlisting it on the side against the bill. Will stopped his ears. Occasionally Parliament, like the rest of our lives, even to our eating and apparel, could hardly go on if our imaginations were too active about processes. There were plenty of dirty-handed men in the world to do dirty business, and Will protested to himself that his share in bringing Mr. Brooke through would be quite innocent. But whether he should succeed in that mode of contributing to the majority on the right side was very doubtful to him. He had written out various speeches and memoranda for speeches, but he had begun to perceive that Mr. Brooke's mind, if it had the burden of remembering any train of thought, would let it drop, run away in search of it, and not easily come back again. To collect documents is one mode of serving your country, and to remember the contents of a document is another. No, the only way in which Mr. Brooke could be coerced into thinking of the right arguments at the right time was to be well plied with them till they took up all the room in his brain. But here there was the difficulty of finding room, so many things having been taken beforehand. Mr. Brooke himself observed that his ideas stood rather in his way when he was speaking. However, Ladislaw's coaching was forthwith to be put to the test, for before the day of nomination Mr. Brooke was to explain himself to the worthy electors of Middlemarch from the balcony of the White Hart, which looked out advantageously at an angle of the market-place, commanding a large area in front, and two converging streets. It was a fine May morning, and everything seemed hopeful. There was some prospect of an understanding between Bagster's committee and Brooks, to which Mr. Bulstrode, Mr. Standish as a liberal lawyer, and such manufacturers as Mr. Plymdale and Mr. Vincey, gave a solidity which almost counterbalanced Mr. Hawley and his associates, who sat for Pinkerton at the Green Dragon. Mr. Brooke, conscious of having weakened the blasts of the trumpet against him by his reforms as a landlord in the last half-year, and hearing himself cheered a little as he drove into the town, felt his heart tolerably light under his buff-coloured waistcoat. But with regard to critical occasions, it often happens that all moments seem comfortably remote until the last. "'This looks well, eh?' said Mr. Brooke, as the crowd gathered. "'I shall have a good audience at any rate. I like this now, this kind of public made up of one's own neighbours, you know.' The weavers and tanners of Middlemarch, unlike Mr. Momsey, had never thought of Mr. Brooke as a neighbour and were not more attached to him than if he had been sent in a box from London. But they listened without much disturbance to the speaker who introduced the candidate, one of them, a political personage from Brassing, who came to tell Middlemarch its duty, spoke so fully that it was alarming to think what the candidate could find to say after him. Meanwhile the crowd became denser, and as the political personage neared to the end of his speech, Mr. Brooke felt a remarkable change in his sensations while he still handled his eyeglass, trifled with documents before him, and exchanged remarks with his committee, as a man to whom the moment of summons was indifferent. "'I'll take another glass of sherry, Ladislaw,' he said with an easy air to Will, who was close behind him, 
and presently handed him the supposed fortifier. It was ill-chosen, for Mr. Brooke was an abstemious man, and to drink a second glass of sherry quickly, at no great interval from the first, was a surprise to his system, which tended to scatter his energies instead of collecting them. Pray pity him. So many English gentlemen make themselves miserable by speechifying on entirely private grounds, whereas Mr. Brooke wished to serve his country by standing for Parliament, which indeed may also be done on private grounds, but being once undertaken does absolutely demand some speechifying. It was not about the beginning of his speech that Mr. Brooke was at all anxious. This, he felt sure, would be all right. He should have it quite pat, cut out as neatly as a set of couplets from Pope. Embarking would be easy, but the vision of open sea that might come after was alarming. "'And questions now,' hinted the demon just waking up in his stomach. "'Somebody may put questions about the schedules.' Ladislaw, he continued aloud, just hand me the memorandum of the schedules. When Mr. Burke presented himself on the balcony, the cheers were quite loud enough to counterbalance the yells, groans, brayings, and other expressions of adverse theory, which were so moderate that Mr. Standish, decidedly an old bird, observed in the ear next to him, This looks dangerous, by God. Holly has got some deeper plan than this. Still, the cheers were exhilarating, and no candidate could look more amiable than Mr. Brooke, with the memorandum in his breast-pocket, his left hand on the rail of the balcony, and his right trifling with his eyeglass. The striking points in his appearance were his buff waistcoat, short-clipped blond hair, and neutral physiognomy. He began with some confidence. "'Gentlemen, electors of Middlemarch!' This was so much the right thing that a little pause after it seemed natural. "'I'm uncommonly glad to be here. I was never so proud and happy in my life. Never so happy, you know.' This was a bold figure of speech, but not exactly the right thing, for, unhappily, the pat opening had slipped away. Even couplets from Pope may be but fallings from us, vanishings, when fear clutches us, and a glass of sherry is hurrying like smoke among our ideas. Ladislaw, who stood at the window behind the speaker, thought, It's all up now. The only chance is that, since the best thing won't always do, floundering may answer for once. Mr. Brooke, meanwhile, having lost other clues, fell back on himself and his qualifications always an appropriate graceful subject for a candidate. "'I am a close neighbor of yours, my good friends. You've known me on the bench a good while. I've always done a good deal into public questions, machinery, now, and machine-breaking. You're many of you concerned with machinery, and I've been going into that lately. It won't do, you know, breaking machines. Everything must go on. Trade, manufactures, commerce, interchange of staples, that kind of thing. Since Adam Smith, that must go on. We must look all over the globe. Observation with intensive view. Must look everywhere, from China to Peru, as somebody says, Johnson, I think, the rambler, you know. This is what I have done up to a certain point. Not as far as Peru, but 
I've not always stayed at home. I saw it wouldn't do. I've been in the Levant, where some of your Middlemarch goods go, and then again in the Baltic, the Baltic now. Plying among his recollections in this way, Mr. Brooke might have got along easily to himself, and would have come back from the remotest seas without trouble, but a diabolical procedure had been set up by the enemy. At one and the same moment there had risen above the shoulders of the crowd, nearly opposite Mr. Brooke, and within ten yards of him, the effigy of himself, buff-colored waistcoat, eyeglass, and neutral physiognomy, painted on rag, and there had arisen, apparently in the air, like the note of the cuckoo, a parrot-like, punch-voiced echo of his words. Everybody looked up at the open windows in the houses, at the opposite angles of the converging streets, but they were either blank or filled by laughing listeners. The most innocent echo has an impish mockery in it when it follows a gravely persistent speaker, and this echo was not at all innocent. If it did not follow with the precision of a natural echo, it had a wicked choice of the words it overtook. By the time it said, The Baltic, now, the laugh which had been running through the audience became a general shout, and but for the sobering effects of party, and that great public cause which the entanglement of things had identified with Brooke of Tipton, the laugh might have caught his committee. Mr. Bulstrode asked, reprehensively, what the new police was doing, but a voice could not be well collared, and an attack on the effigy of the candidate would have been too equivocal, since Hawley probably meant it to be pelted. Mr. Brooke himself was not in a position to be quickly conscious of anything except a general slipping away of ideas within himself. He had even a little singing in the ears, and he was the only person who had not yet taken distinct account of the echo, or discerned the image of himself. Few things hold the perceptions more thoroughly captive than anxiety about what we have got to say. Mr. Brooke heard the laughter, but he had expected some Tory efforts at disturbance, and he was at this moment additionally excited by the tickling, stinging sense that his lost exordium was coming back to fetch him from the Baltic. "'That reminds me,' he went on, thrusting a hand into his side-pocket with an easy air, "'if I wanted a precedent, you know.' but we never want a precedent for the right thing. But there is Chatham now. I can't say I should have supported Chatham, or Pitt, the younger Pitt. He was not a man of ideas. We want ideas, you know. Blast your ideas! We want the bill! said a loud, rough voice from the crowd below. Immediately the invisible Punch, who had hitherto followed Mr. Brooke, repeated, Blast your ideas! We want the bill! The laugh was louder than ever, and for the first time Mr. Brooke, being himself silent, heard distinctly the mocking echo. But it seemed to ridicule his interrupter, and in that light was encouraging. So he replied with amenity, "'There is something in what you say, my good friend, and what do we meet for but to speak our minds? Freedom of opinion, freedom of the press, liberty, that kind of thing?' The bill, now, you shall have the bill. Here Mr. Brooke paused a moment to fix on his eyeglass and take the paper from his breast pocket, with a sense of being practical and coming to particulars. 
the invisible punch followed you shall have the bill mr brooke per electioneering contest and a seat outside parliament as delivered five thousand pounds seven shillings and fourpence mr brooke amid the roars of laughter turned red let his eyeglass fall and looked about him confusedly saw the image of himself which had come nearer the next moment he saw it dolorously bespattered with eggs his spirit rose a little and his voice too buffoonery tricks ridicule the test of truth all that is very well here an unpleasant egg broke on mr brooke's shoulder as the echo said all that is very well then came a hail of eggs chiefly aimed at the image but occasionally hitting the original as if by chance there was a stream of new men pushing among the crowd whistles yells bellowings and fifes made all the greater hubbub because there was shouting and struggling to put them down no voice would have had wing enough to rise above the uproar and mr brooke disagreeably anointed stood his ground no longer the frustration would have been less exasperating if it had been less gamesome and boyish a serious assault of which the newspaper reporter can aver that it endangered the learned gentleman's ribs or can respectfully bear witness to the soles of that gentleman's boots having been visible above the railing or perhaps more consolations attached to it mr brooke re-entered the committee-room saying as carelessly as he could this is a little too bad you know i should have got the ear of the people by and by but they didn't give me time i should have gone into the bill by and by you know he added glancing at ladislaw however things will come all right at the nomination but it was not resolved unanimously that things would come right on the contrary the committee looked rather grim and the political personage from brassing was writing busily as if he were brewing new devices it was bowyer who did it said mr standish evasively i know it as well as if he had been advertised he's uncommonly good at ventriloquism and he did it uncommonly well by god holly has been having him to dinner lately there's a fund of talent in bowyer well you know you never mentioned him to me standish else i would have invited him to dine said poor mr brooke who had gone through a great deal of inviting for the good of his country there's not a more paltry fellow in middlemarch than bowyer said ladislaw indignantly but it seems as if the paltry fellows were always to turn the scale will was thoroughly out of temper with himself as well as with his principal and he went to shut himself in his rooms with a half-formed resolve to throw up the pioneer and mr brooke together why should he stay if the impassable gulf between himself and dorothea were ever to be filled up it must rather be by his going away and getting into a thoroughly different position than by staying here and slipping into deserved contempt as an understrapper of brooks then came the young dream of wonders that he might do in five years for example political writing political speaking would get a higher value now public life was going to be wider and more national and they might give him such distinction that he would not seem to be asking dorothea to step down to him five years if he could only be sure that she cared for him more than for others if he could only make her aware that he stood aloof 
until he could tell his love without lowering himself. Then he could go away easily, and begin a career which at five-and-twenty seemed probable enough in the inward order of things, where talent brings fame, and fame everything else which is delightful. He could speak, and he could write. He could master any subject if he chose, and he meant always to take the side of reason and justice, on which he would carry all his ardor. Why should he not one day be lifted above the shoulders of the crowd, and feel that he had won that eminence well? Without doubt he would leave Middlemarch, go to town, and make himself fit for celebrity by eating his dinners. But not immediately, not until some kind of sign had passed between him and Dorothea. He could not be satisfied until she knew why, even if he were the man she would choose to marry, he would not marry her. Hence he must keep his post and bear with Mr. Brooke a little longer. But he soon had reason to suspect that Mr. Brooke had anticipated him in the wish to break up their connection. Deputations without and voices within had concurred in inducing that philanthropist to take a stronger measure than usual for the good of mankind namely, to withdraw in favor of another candidate, to whom he left the advantages of his canvassing machinery. He himself called this a strong measure, but observed that his health was less capable of sustaining excitement than he had imagined. "'I have felt uneasy about the chest. It won't do to carry that too far,' he said to Ladislaw in explaining the affair. "'I must pull up. Poor Casabon was a warning, you know.' I've made some heavy advances, but I've dug a channel. It's rather coarse work, this electioneering, eh, Ladislaw? Dare say you are tired of it. However, we have dug a channel with the pioneer, put things in a track, and so on. A more ordinary man than you might carry it on now, more ordinary, you know. Do you wish me to give it up? said Will, the quick color coming in his face as he rose from the writing-table and took a turn of three steps with his hands in his pockets. I am ready to do so whenever you wish it. As to wishing, my dear Ladislaw, I have the highest opinion of your powers, you know. But about the pioneer, I have been consulting a little with some of the men on our side, and they are inclined to take it into their hands, indemnify me to a certain extent, carry it on, in fact and, under the circumstances, you might like to give it up, might find a better field. These people might not take that high view of you which I have always taken, as an alter-ego, a right hand, though I always looked forward to your doing something else. I think of having a run into France, but I'll write you any letters, you know, to Althorpe and people of that kind. I've met Althorpe, I am exceedingly obliged to you, said Ladislaw proudly. Since you are going to part with the pioneer, I need not trouble you about the steps I shall take. I may choose to continue here for the present. After Mr. Brooke had left him, Will said to himself, The rest of the family have been urging him to get rid of me, and he doesn't care now about my going. I shall stay as long as I like. I shall go of my own movements, and not because they are afraid of me. End of chapter 51
Chapter Fifty Two of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyot. His heart, the lowliest duties on itself did lay. Wordsworth. On that June evening, when Mister Fairbrother knew that he was to have the Lowick living, there was joy in the old-fashioned parlor, and even the portraits of the great lawyers seemed to look on with satisfaction. His mother left her tea and toast untouched, but sat with her usual pretty primness, only showing her emotion by that flush in the cheeks and brightness in the eyes which give an old woman a touching momentary identity with her far-off youthful self, and saying decisively, "'The greatest comfort, Camden, is that you have deserved it.' "'When a man gets a good birth, mother, half the deserving must come after.' said the son, brimful of pleasure, and not trying to conceal it. The gladness in his face was of that active kind which seems to have energy enough not only to flash outwardly, but to light up busy vision within. One seemed to see thoughts as well as delight in his glances. "'Now, aunt,' he went on, rubbing his hands and looking at Miss Noble, who was making tender little beaver-like noises, there shall be sugar-candy always on the table for you to steal and give to the children, and you shall have a great many new stockings to make presents of, and you shall darn your own more than ever. Miss Noble nodded at her nephew with a subdued, half-frightened laugh, conscious of having already dropped an additional lump of sugar into her basket on the strength of the new preferment. As for you, Winnie, the vicar went on, I shall make no difficulty about your marrying any Lowick bachelor, Mr. Solomon Featherstone, for example, as soon as I find you are in love with him. Miss Winifred, who had been looking at her brother all the while and crying heartily, which was her way of rejoicing, smiled through her tears and said, You must set me the example, Cam. You must marry now. With all my heart, but who is in love with me? "'I am a seedy old fellow,' said the vicar, rising, pushing his chair away, and looking down at himself. "'What do you say, mother?' "'You are a handsome man, Camden, though not so fine a figure of a man as your father,' said the old lady. "'I wish you would marry Miss Garth, brother,' said Miss Winifred. "'She would make us so lively at Lowick.' "'Very fine.' You talk as if young women were tied up to be chosen, like poultry at market, as if I only had to ask and everybody would have me, said the vicar, not caring to specify. We don't want everybody, said Miss Winifred, but you would like Miss Garth, mother, shouldn't you? My son's choice shall be mine, said Mrs. Fairbrother, with majestic discretion, and a wife would be most welcome, Camden. You will want your whist at home when we go to Lowick, and Henrietta Noble never was a whist-player. Mrs. Fairbrother always called her tiny old sister by that magnificent name. I shall do without whist now, mother. Why so, Camden? In my time whist was thought an undeniable amusement for a good churchman, said Mrs. Fairbrother, innocent of the meaning that whist had for her son, and speaking rather sharply, as at some dangerous countenancing of new doctrine. "'I shall be too busy for whist. I shall have two parishes,' said the vicar, preferring not to discuss the virtues of that game. He had already said to Dorothea, 
I don't feel bound to give up St. Botolph's. It is protest enough against the pluralism they want to reform if I give somebody else most of the money. The stronger thing is not to give up power, but to use it well. I have thought of that, said Dorothea. So far as self is concerned, I think it would be easier to give up power and money than to keep them. It seems very unfitting that I should have this patronage, yet I felt that I ought not to let it be used by someone else instead of me. "'It is I who am bound to act so that you will not regret your power,' said Mr. Fairbrother. His was one of the natures in which conscience gets the more active when the yoke of life ceases to gall them. He made no display of humility on the subject, but in his heart he felt rather ashamed that his conduct had shown latches which others who did not get benefices were free from. "'I used often to wish I had been something else than a clergyman,' he said to Lydgate. "'But perhaps it will be better to try and make as good a clergyman out of myself as I can. That is the well-beneficed point of view, you perceive, from which difficulties are much simplified,' he ended, smiling. The vicar did feel then as if his shares of duties would be easy. But duty has a trick of behaving unexpectedly, something like a heavy friend whom we have amiably asked to visit us, and who breaks his leg within our gates. Hardly a week later, duty presented itself in his study under the disguise of Fred Vincy, now returned from Omnibus College with his bachelor's degree. "'I'm ashamed to trouble you, Mr. Fairbrother,' said Fred whose fair open face was propitiating, but you are the only friend I can consult. I told you everything once before, and you were so good that I can't help coming to see you again. Sit down, Fred. I'm ready to hear and do anything I can, said the vicar, who was busy packing some small objects for removal, and went on with his work. I wanted to tell you, Fred hesitated an instant, and then went on plungingly, I might go into the church now, and really, look where I may, I can't see anything else to do. I don't like it, but I know it's uncommonly hard on my father to say so, after he has spent a good deal of money in educating me for it. Fred paused again an instant, and then repeated, And I can't see anything else to do. I did talk to your father about it, Fred, but I made little way with him. He said it was too late. But you have got over one bridge now. What are your other difficulties? Merely that I don't like it. I don't like divinity and preaching, and feeling obliged to look serious. I like riding across country, and doing as other men do. I don't mean that I want to be a bad fellow in any way, but I've no taste for the sort of thing people expect of a clergyman. And yet what else am I to do? My father can't spare me any capital, else I might go into farming and he has no room for me in his trade. And, of course, I can't begin to study for law or physic now when my father wants me to earn something. It's all very well to say I'm wrong to go into the church, but those who say so might as well tell me to go into the backwoods. Fred's voice had taken a tone of grumbling remonstrance, and Mr. Fairbrother might have been inclined to smile if his mind had not been too busy in imagining more than Fred told him. "'Have you any difficulties about doctrines, about the articles?' he said, trying hard to think of the question simply for Fred's sake. "'No. I suppose the articles are right. 
I'm not prepared with any arguments to disprove them, and much better, cleverer fellows than I am go in for them entirely. I think it would be rather ridiculous in me to urge scruples of that sort, as if I were a judge, said Fred, quite simply. I suppose, then, it has occurred to you that you might be a fair parish priest without being much of a divine? Of course, if I am obliged to be a clergyman, I shall try and do my duty, though I mayn't like it. Do you think anybody ought to blame me? For going into the church under the circumstances? That depends on your conscience, Fred, how far you have counted the cost, and seen what your position will require of you. I can only tell you about myself that I have always been too lax, and have been uneasy in consequence. But there is another hindrance, said Fred, coloring. I did not tell you before, though perhaps I may have said things that made you guess it. There is somebody I am very fond of. I have loved her ever since we were children. Miss Garth, I suppose, said the vicar, examining some labels very closely. Yes, I shouldn't mind anything if she would have me, and I know I could be a good fellow then. And you think she returns the feeling? She never will say so, and a good while ago she made me promise not to speak to her about it again. And she has set her mind especially against my being a clergyman, I know that. But I can't give her up. I do think she cares about me. I saw Mrs. Garth last night, and she said that Mary was staying at Lowick Rectory with Miss Fairbrother. Yes, she is very kindly helping my sister. Do you wish to go there? No, I want to ask a great favor of you. I am ashamed to bother you in this way, but Mary might listen to what you said, if you mentioned the subject to her, I mean about my going into the church. That is a rather delicate task, my dear Fred. I shall have to presuppose your attachment to her, and to enter on the subject as you wish me to do, will be asking her to tell me whether she returns it. That is what I want her to tell you, said Fred bluntly. I don't know what to do unless I can get at her feeling. You mean that you would be guided by that as to your going into the church? If Mary said she would never have me, I might as well go wrong in one way as another. That is nonsense, Fred. Men outlive their love, but they don't outlive the consequences of their recklessness. Not my sort of love. I have never been without loving Mary. If I had to give her up, it would be like beginning to live on wooden legs. Will she not be hurt at my intrusion? No, I feel sure she will not. She respects you more than any one, and she would not put you off with fun as she does me. Of course I could not have told any one else, or asked any one else to speak to her but you. There is no one else who would be such a friend to both of us. Fred paused a moment, and then said, rather complainingly, And she ought to acknowledge that I have worked in order to pass. She ought to believe that I would exert myself for her sake. There was a moment's silence before Mr. Fairbrother laid down his work, and putting out his hand to Fred, said, Very well, my boy, I will do what you wish. That very day Mr. Fairbrother went to Lowick Parsonage on the nag which he had just set up. Decidedly, I am an old stock, he thought. The young growths are pushing me aside. He found Mary in the garden gathering roses and sprinkling the petals on a sheet, 
the sun was low and tall trees sent their shadows across the grassy walks where mary was moving without bonnet or parasol she did not observe mr farebrother's approach along the grass and had just stooped down to lecture a small blackened hand terrier which would persist in walking on the sheet and smelling the rose leaves as mary sprinkled them she took his forepaws in one hand and lifted up the forefinger of the other while the dog wrinkled his brows and looked embarrassed fly fly i am ashamed of you mary was saying in a grave contralto this is not becoming in a sensible dog anybody would think you were a silly young gentleman you are unmerciful to young gentlemen miss garth said the vicar within two yards of her mary started up and blushed it always answers to reason with fly she said laughingly but not with young gentlemen oh with some i suppose since some of them turn into excellent men i am glad of that admission because i want at this very moment to interest you in a young gentleman not a silly one i hope said mary beginning to pluck the roses again and feeling her heart beat uncomfortably no though perhaps wisdom is not his strong point but rather affection and sincerity however wisdom lies more in those two qualities than people are apt to imagine i hope you know by those marks what young gentleman i mean yes i think i do said mary bravely her face getting more serious and her hands cold it must be fred vincy he has asked me to consult you about his going into the church i hope you will not think that i consented to take a liberty in promising to do so on the contrary mr farebrother said mary giving up the roses and folding her arms but unable to look up whenever you have anything to say to me i feel honored but before i enter on that question let me just touch a point on which your father took me into confidence by the way it was that very evening on which i once before fulfilled a mission from fred after he had gone to college mr garth told me what happened on the night of featherstone's death how you refused to burn the will and he said that you had some heart-prickings on that subject because you had been the innocent means of hindering fred from getting his ten thousand pounds i have kept that in mind and i have heard something that may relieve you on that score may show you that no sin-offering is demanded from you there mr farebrother paused a moment and looked at mary he meant to give fred his full advantage but it would be well he thought to clear her mind of any superstitions such as women sometimes follow when they do a man the wrong of marrying him as an act of atonement mary's cheeks had begun to burn a little and she was mute i mean that your action made no real difference to fred's lot i find that the first will would not have been legally good after the burning of the last it would not have stood if it had been disputed and you may be sure it would have been disputed so on that score you may feel your mind free thank you mr farebrother said mary earnestly i am grateful to you for remembering my feelings well now i may go on fred you know has taken his degree he has worked his way so far and now the question is what is he to do that question is so difficult that he is inclined to follow his father's wishes and enter the church though you know better than i do 
that he was quite set against that formerly. I have questioned him on the subject, and I confess I see no insuperable objection to his being a clergyman, as things go. He says that he could turn his mind to doing his best in that vocation, on one condition. If that condition were fulfilled, I would do my utmost in helping Fred on. After a time, not of course at first, he might be with me as my curate, and he would have so much to do that his stipend would be nearly what I used to get as a vicar. But I repeat that there is a condition without which all this good cannot come to pass. He has opened his heart to me, Miss Garth, and asked me to plead for him. The condition lies entirely in your feeling. Mary looked so much moved that he said after a moment, Let us walk a little. And when they were walking, he added, To speak quite plainly, Fred will not take any course which would lessen the chance that you would consent to be his wife. But with that prospect, he will try his best at anything you approve. I cannot possibly say that I will ever be his wife, Mr. Fairbrother, but I certainly never will be his wife if he becomes a clergyman. What you say is most generous and kind. I don't mean for a moment to correct your judgment. It is only that I have my girlish mocking way of looking at things, said Mary, with the returning sparkle of playfulness in her answer, which only made its modesty more charming. He wishes me to report exactly what you think, said Mr. Fairbrother. I could not love a man who is ridiculous, said Mary, not choosing to go deeper. Fred has sense and knowledge enough to make him respectable, if he likes, in some good worldly business, but I can never imagine him preaching and exhorting and pronouncing blessings and praying by the sick, without feeling as if I were looking at a caricature. His being a clergyman would be only for gentility's sake, and I think there is nothing more contemptible than such imbecile gentility. I used to think that of Mr. Krause, with his empty face and neat umbrella, and mincing little speeches. What right have such men to represent Christianity, as if it were an institution for getting up idiots genteelly, as if—Mary checked herself. She had been carried along as if she had been speaking to Fred instead of Mr. Fairbrother. Young women are severe. They don't feel the stress of action as men do, though perhaps I ought to make you an exception here. But you don't put Fred Vincy on so low a level as that. No, indeed, he has plenty of sense, but I think he would not show it as a clergyman. He would be a piece of professional affectation. Then the answer is quite decided. As a clergyman he could have no hope. Mary shook her head. But if he braved all the difficulties of getting his bread in some other way, will you give him the support of hope? May he count on winning you? I think Fred ought not need telling again what I have already said to him, Mary answered, with a slight resentment in her manner. I mean that he ought not to put such questions until he has done something worthy, instead of saying that he could do it. Mr. Fairbrother was silent for a minute or more, and then, as they turned and paused under the shadow of a maple at the end of a grassy walk, said, I understand that you resist any attempt to fetter you. But either your feeling for Fred Vincy excludes your entertaining another attachment, or it does not. 
either he may count on your remaining single until he shall have earned your hand or he may in any case be disappointed pardon me mary you know i used to catechize you under that name but when the state of a woman's affections touches the happiness of another life of more lives than one i think it would be the nobler course for her to be perfectly direct and open mary in her turn was silent wondering not at mr farebrother's manner but at his tone which had a grave restrained emotion in it when the strange idea flashed across her that his words had a reference to himself she was incredulous and ashamed of entertaining it she had never thought that any man could love her except fred who had espoused her with the umbrella ring when she wore socks and little strapped shoes still less that she could be of any importance to mr farebrother the cleverest man in her narrow circle she had only time to feel that all this was hazy and perhaps illusory but one thing was clear and determined her answer since you think it my duty mr farebrother i will tell you that i have too strong a feeling for fred to give him up for any one else i should never be quite happy if i thought he was unhappy for the loss of me it has taken such deep root in me my gratitude to him for always loving me best and minding so much if i hurt myself from the time when we were very little i cannot imagine any new feeling coming to make that weaker i should like better than anything to see him worthy of every one's respect but please tell him i will not promise to marry him till then i should shame and grieve my father and mother he is free to choose some one else then i have fulfilled my commission thoroughly said mr farebrother putting out his hand to mary and i shall ride back to middlemarch forthwith with this prospect before him we shall get fred into the right niche somehow and i hope i shall live to join your hands god bless you oh please stay and let me give you some tea said mary her eyes filled with tears for something indefinable something like the resolute suppression of a pain in mr farebrother's manner made her feel suddenly miserable as she had once felt when she saw her father's hands trembling in a moment of trouble no my dear no i must get back in three minutes the vicar was on horseback again having gone magnanimously through a duty much harder than the renunciation of whist or even than the writing of penitential meditations End of chapter 52 Chapter 53 of Middlemarch by George Eliot This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat It is but a shallow haste which concludeth insincerity from what outsiders call inconsistency, putting a dead mechanism of ifs and therefores for the living myriad of hidden suckers whereby the belief and the conduct are wrought into mutual sustainment mr bulstrode when he was hoping to acquire a new interest in lowick had naturally had an especial wish that the new clergyman should be one whom he thoroughly approved and he believed it to be a chastisement and admonition directed to his own shortcomings and those of the nation at large that just about the time when he came in possession of the deeds which made him the proprietor of stone court mr farebrother read himself into the quaint little church and preached his first sermon to the congregation of farmers 
laborers, and village artisans. It was not that Mr. Bulstrode intended to frequent Lowick Church, or to reside at Stone Court for a good while to come. He had bought the excellent farm and fine homestead simply as a retreat which he might gradually enlarge as to the land and beautify as to the dwelling, until it should be conducive to the divine glory that he should enter on it as a residence, partially withdrawing from his present exertions in the administration of business, and throwing more conspicuously on the side of gospel truth the weight of local landed proprietorship, which providence might increase by unforeseen occasions of purchase. A strong leading in this direction seemed to have been given in the surprising facility of getting Stone Court, when every one had expected that Mr. Rigg Featherstone would have clung to it as the Garden of Eden. That was what poor old Peter himself had expected, having often, in imagination, looked up through the sods above him, and, unobstructed by perspective, seen his frog-faced legatee enjoying the fine old place to the perpetual surprise and disappointment of other survivors. But how little we know what would make paradise for our neighbors. We judge from our own desires, and our neighbors themselves are not always open enough to even throw out a hint of theirs. The cool and judicious Joshua Rigg had not allowed his parent to perceive that Stone Court was anything less than the chief good in his estimation, and he had certainly wished to call it his own. But as Warren Hastings looked at gold and thought of buying Dalesford, so Joshua Rigg looked at Stone Court and thought of buying gold. He had a very distinct and intense vision of his chief good, the vigorous greed which he had inherited having taken a special form by dint of circumstance, and his chief good was to be a money-changer. From his earliest employment as an errand-boy in a seaport, he had looked through the windows of the money-changers, as other boys looked through the windows of the pastry-cooks. The fascination had wrought itself gradually into a deep, special passion. He meant, when he had property, to do many things, one of them being to marry a genteel young person, but these were all accidents and joys that imagination could dispense with. The one joy after which his soul thirsted was to have a money-changer's shop on a much-frequented quay, to have locks all round him of which he held the keys, and to look sublimely cool as he handled the breeding-coins of all nations, while helpless cupidity looked at him enviously from the other side of an iron lattice. The strength of that passion had been a power enabling him to master all the knowledge necessary to gratify it, and when others were thinking that he had settled at Stone Court for life, Joshua himself was thinking that the moment now was not far off when he should settle on the North Quay with the best appointments in safes and locks. Enough. We are concerned with looking at Joshua Riggs' sale of his land from Mr. Bulstrode's point of view and he interpreted it as a cheering dispensation conveying perhaps a sanction to a purpose which he had for some time entertained without external encouragement. He interpreted it thus, but not too confidently, offering up his thanksgiving in guarded phraseology. His doubts did not arise from the possible relations of the event to Joshua Riggs' destiny, which belonged to the unmapped regions not taken under the providential government, 
except perhaps in an imperfect colonial way, but they arose from reflecting that this dispensation, too, might be a chastisement for himself, as Mr. Fairbrother's induction to the living clearly was. This was not what Mr. Bulstrode said to any man for the sake of deceiving him. It was what he said to himself. It was as genuinely his mode of explaining events as any theory of yours may be, if you happen to disagree with him. For the egoism which enters into our theories does not affect their sincerity. Rather, the more our egoism is satisfied, the more robust is our belief. However, whether for sanction or for chastisement, Mr. Bulstrode, hardly fifteen months after the death of Peter Featherstone, had become the proprietor of Stone Court, and what Peter would say, if he were worthy to know, had become an inexhaustible and consolatory subject of conversation to his disappointed relatives. The tables were now turned on that dear brother departed, and to contemplate the frustration of his cunning, by the superior cunning of things in general, was a cud of delight to Solomon. Mrs. Wall had a melancholy triumph in the proof that it did not answer to make false featherstones and cut off the genuine, and Sister Martha, receiving the news in the chalky flats, said, "'Dear, dear, then the Almighty could have been none so pleased with the almshouses after all.' Affectionate Mrs. Bulstrode was particularly glad of the advantage which her husband's wealth was likely to get from the purchase of Stone Court. Few days passed without his riding thither, and looking over some part of the farm with the bailiff, and the evenings were delicious in that quiet spot, when the new hayricks lately set up were sending forth odours to mingle with the breath of the rich old garden. One evening, while the sun was still above the horizon and burning in golden lamps among the great walnut boughs, Mr. Bulstrode was pausing on horseback outside the front gate waiting for Caleb Garth, who had met him by appointment to give an opinion on a question of stable drainage, and was now advising the bailiff in the rickyard. Mr. Bulstrode was conscious of being in a good spiritual frame, and more than usually serene, under the influence of his innocent recreation. He was doctrinally convinced that there was a total absence of merit in himself. But that doctrinal conviction may be held without pain, when the sense of demerit does not take a distinct shape in memory, and revive the tingling of shame, or the pang of remorse. Nay, it may be held with intense satisfaction when the depth of our sinning is but a measure for the depth of forgiveness, and a clenching proof that we are peculiar instruments of the divine intention. The memory has as many moods as the temper, and shifts its scenery like a diorama. At this moment Mr. Bulstrode felt as if the sunshine were all one with that of far-off evenings when he was a very young man and used to go out preaching beyond Highbury. He would willingly have had that service of exhortation in prospect now. The texts were there still, and so was his own facility in expounding them. His brief reverie was interrupted by the return of Caleb Garth, who also was on horseback, and was just shaking his bridle before starting, when he exclaimed, "'Bless my heart!' What's this fellow in black coming along the lane? He's like one of those men one sees about after the races. Mr. Bulstrode turned his horse and looked along the lane, but made no reply. The comer was our slight acquaintance, Mr. Raffles, 
whose appearance presented no other change than such as was due to a suit of black and a crape hat-band. He was within three yards of the horsemen now, and they could see the flash of recognition in his face as he whirled his stick upward, looking all the while at Mr. Bulstrode, and at last exclaiming, "'By Jove, Nick, it's you! I couldn't be mistaken, though the five-and-twenty years have played old bogey with us both. How are ye? You didn't expect to see me here. Come, shake us by the hand.' To say that Mr. Raffles' manner was rather excited would be only one mode of saying that it was evening. Caleb Garth could see that there was a moment of struggle and hesitation in Mr. Bulstrode, but it ended in his putting out his hand coldly to Raffles and saying, "'I did not indeed expect to see you in this remote country place.' "'Well, it belongs to a stepson of mine,' said Raffles, adjusting himself in a swaggering attitude. "'I came to see him here before. I'm not so surprised at seeing you, old fellow, because I picked up a letter.' what you may call a providential thing. It's uncommonly fortunate I met you, though, for I don't care about seeing my stepson. He's not affectionate, and his poor mother's gone now. To tell the truth, I came out of love to you, Nick. I came to get your address for—look here!" Raffles drew a crumpled paper from his pocket. Almost any other man than Caleb Garth might have been tempted to linger on the spot for the sake of hearing all he could about a man whose acquaintance with Bulstrode seemed to imply passages in the banker's life so unlike anything that was known of him in Middlemarch that they must have the nature of a secret to pique curiosity. But Caleb was peculiar. Certain human tendencies which are commonly strong were almost absent from his mind, and one of these was curiosity about personal affairs, especially if there was anything discreditable to be found out concerning another man. Caleb preferred not to know it, and if he had to tell anybody under him that his evil doings were discovered, he was more embarrassed than the culprit. He now spurred his horse, and, saying, "'I wish you a good evening, Mr. Bulstrode. I must be getting home,' set off at a trot. "'You didn't put your full address to this letter,' Raffles continued. "'That was not like the first-rate man of business you used to be. The shrubs, they may be anywhere.' You live near at hand, eh? Have cut the London concern altogether, perhaps turned country squire. Have a rural mansion to invite me to. Lord, how many years it is ago! The old lady must have been dead a pretty long while. Gone to glory without the pain of knowing how poor her daughter was, eh? But, by Jove, you're very pale and pasty, Nick. Come, if you're going home, I'll walk by your side." Mr. Bulstrode's usual paleness had, in fact, taken an almost deathly hue. Five minutes before, the expanse of his life had been submerged in its evening sunshine, which shone backward to its remembered morning. Sin seemed to be a question of doctrine and inward penitence, humiliation and exercise of the closet, the bearing of his deeds a matter of private vision adjusted solely by spiritual relations and conceptions of the divine purposes. And now, as if by some hideous magic, this loud red figure had risen before him in unmanageable solidity, an incorporate past which had not entered into his imagination of chastisements. 
but Mr. Bulstrode's thought was busy, and he was not a man to act or speak rashly. "'I was going home,' he said, "'but I can defer my ride a little. And you can, if you please, rest here.' "'Thank you,' said Raffles, making a grimace. "'I don't care now about seeing my stepson. I'd rather go home with you.' Your stepson, if Mr. Rigg Featherstone was he, is here no longer. I am master here now. Raffles opened wide eyes and gave a long whistle of surprise before he said, Well, then, I've no objection. I've had enough walking from the coach road. I never was much of a walker or rider either. What I like is a smart vehicle and a spirited cob. I was always a little heavy in the saddle. "'What a pleasant surprise it must be to you to see me, old fellow,' he continued, as they turned towards the house. "'You don't say so, but you never took your luck heartily. You were always thinking of improving the occasion. You'd such a gift for improving your luck.' Mr. Raffles seemed greatly to enjoy his own wit, and swung his leg in a swaggering manner which was rather too much for his companion's judicious patience. "'If I remember rightly,' Mr. Bulstrode observed, with chill anger, "'our acquaintance many years ago had not the sort of intimacy which you are now assuming, Mr. Raffles. Any services you desire of me will be the more readily rendered if you will avoid a tone of familiarity which did not lie in our former intercourse, and can hardly be warranted by more than twenty years of separation.' "'You don't like being called Nick?' Why, I always called you Nick in my heart, and though lost to sight, to memory dear. By Jove, my feelings have ripened for you like fine old cognac. I hope you've got some in the house now. Josh filled my flask well the last time. Mr. Bulstrode had not yet fully learned that even the desire for cognac was not stronger in raffles than the desire to torment, and that a hint of annoyance always served him as a fresh cue. But it was clear that further objection was useless, and Mr. Bulstrode, in giving orders to the housekeeper for the accommodation of the guest, had a resolute air of quietude. There was the comfort of thinking that this housekeeper had been in the service of Rigg also, and might accept the idea that Mr. Bulstrode entertained Raffles merely as a friend of her former master. When there was food and drink spread before his visitor in the wainscoted parlour, and no witness in the room, Mr. Bulstrode said, "'Your habits and mine are so different, Mr. Raffles, that we can hardly enjoy each other's society. The wisest plan for us both will therefore be to part as soon as possible. Since you say that you wished to meet me, you probably considered that you had some business to transact with me. But under the circumstances I will invite you to remain here for the night, and I will myself ride over here early to-morrow morning, before breakfast, in fact, when I can receive any communication you have to make to me. "'With all my heart,' said Raffles, "'this is a comfortable place, a little dull for a continuance, but I can put up with it for a night, with this good liquor and the prospect of seeing you again in the morning. You're a much better host than my stepson was.' But Josh owed me a bit of a grudge for marrying his mother, and between you and me there was never anything but kindness. 
Mr. Bulstrode, hoping that the peculiar mixture of joviality and sneering in Raffles' manner was a good deal the effect of drink, had determined to wait till he was quite sober before he spent more words upon him. But he rode home with a terribly lucid vision of the difficulty there would be in arranging any result that could be permanently counted on with this man. It was inevitable that he should wish to get rid of John Raffles, though his reappearance could not be regarded as lying outside the divine plan. The spirit of evil might have sent him to threaten Mr. Bulstrode's subversion as an instrument of good, but the threat must have been permitted, and was a chastisement of a new kind. It was an hour of anguish for him, very different from the hours in which his struggle had been securely private, and which had ended with a sense that his secret misdeeds were pardoned and his services accepted. Those misdeeds, even when committed, had they not been half sanctified by the singleness of his desire to devote himself and all he possessed to the furtherance of the divine scheme? And was he, after all, to become a mere stone of stumbling and a rock of offence? For who would understand the work within him? Who would not, when there was the pretext of casting disgrace upon him, confound his whole life and the truths he had espoused in one heap of obloquy? In his closest meditations the lifelong habit of Mr. Bulstrode's mind clad his most egoistic terrors in doctrinal references to superhuman ends. But even while we are talking and meditating about the Earth's orbit and the solar system, what we feel and adjust our movements to is the stable Earth and the changing day. And now, within all the automatic succession of theoretic phrases, distinct and inmost as the shiver and the ache of oncoming fever, when we are discussing abstract pain, was the forecast of disgrace in the presence of his neighbors and of his own wife. For the pain, as well as the public estimate of disgrace, depends on the amount of previous profession. To men who only aim at escaping felony, nothing short of the prisoner's dock is disgrace. But Mr. Bulstrode had aimed at being an eminent Christian. It was not more than half-past seven in the morning when he again reached Stone Court. The fine old place never looked more like a delightful home than at that moment. The great white lilies were in flower. The nasturtiums, their pretty leaves all silvered with dew, were running away over the low stone wall. The very noises all around had a heart of peace within them. But everything was spoiled for the owner as he walked on the gravel in front and awaited the descent of Mr. Raffles, with whom he was condemned to breakfast. It was not long before they were seated together in the wainscoted parlour over their tea and toast, which was much as Raffles cared to take at that early hour. The difference between his morning and evening self was not so great as his companion had imagined that it might be. The delight in tormenting was perhaps even the stronger, because his spirits were rather less highly pitched. Certainly his manners seemed more disagreeable by the morning light. "'As I have little time to spare, Mr. Raffles,' said the banker, who could hardly do more than sip his tea and break his toast without eating it, "'I shall be obliged if you will mention at once the ground on which you wish to meet with me. I presume that you have a home elsewhere and will be glad to return to it.' 
"'Why, if a man has got any heart, doesn't he want to see an old friend, Nick? I must call you Nick. We always did call you young Nick when we knew you meant to marry the old widow. Some said you had a handsome family likeness to old Nick, but that was your mother's fault, calling you Nicholas. Aren't you glad to see me again?' I expected an invite to stay with you at some pretty place. My own establishment is broken up, now my wife's dead. I've no particular attachment to any spot. I would as soon settle hereabout as anywhere. May I ask why you returned from America? I considered that the strong wish you expressed to go there, when an adequate sum was furnished, was tantamount to an engagement that you would remain there for life. Never knew that a wish to go to a place was the same thing as a wish to stay. But I did stay a matter of ten years. It didn't suit me to stay any longer. And I'm not going again, Nick. Here Mr. Raffles winked slowly as he looked at Mr. Bulstrode. Do you wish to be settled in any business? What is your calling now? Thank you. My calling is to enjoy myself as much as I can. I don't care about working any more. If I did anything, it would be a little traveling in the tobacco line, or something of that sort, which takes a man into agreeable company, but not without an independence to fall back upon. That's what I want. I'm not so strong as I was, Nick, though I've got more color than you. I want an independence. "'That could be supplied to you, if you would engage to keep at a distance,' said Mr. Bulstrode, perhaps with a little too much eagerness in his undertone. "'That must be as it suits my convenience,' said Raffles coolly. "'I see no reason why I shouldn't make a few acquaintances hereabout. I'm not ashamed of myself as company for anybody. I dropped my portmanteau at the turnpike when I got down. Change of linen? Genuine?' honor bright, more than fronts and wristbands, and with this suit of mourning, straps and everything, I should do you credit among the knobs here. Mr. Raffles had pushed away his chair and looked down at himself, particularly at his straps. His chief intention was to annoy Bulstrode, but he really thought that his appearance now would produce a good effect, and that he was not only handsome and witty, but clad in a mourning style which implied solid connections. "'If you intend to rely on me in any way, Mr. Raffles,' said Bulstrode, after a moment's pause, "'you will expect to meet my wishes.' "'Ah, to be sure,' said Raffles, with a mocking cordiality. "'Didn't I always do it? Lord, you made a pretty thing out of me, and I got but little. I've often thought since— I might have done better by telling the old woman that I'd found her daughter and her grandchild. It would have suited my feelings better. I've got a soft place in my heart. But you've buried the old lady by this time, I suppose. It's all one to her now. And you've got your fortune out of that profitable business which had such a blessing on it. You've taken to being a knob, buying land, being a country bashaw. Still in the dissenting line, eh? Still godly? Or taken to the church as more genteel? This time Mr. Raffles' slow wink and slight protrusion of his tongue was worse than a nightmare, 
because it held the certitude that it was not a nightmare, but a waking misery. Mr. Bulstrode felt a shuddering nausea, and did not speak, but was considering diligently whether he should not leave Raffles to do as he would, and simply defy him as a slanderer. The man would soon show himself disreputable enough to make people disbelieve him, but not when he tells any ugly-looking truth about you, said discerning consciousness. And, again, it seemed no wrong to keep Raffles at a distance. But Mr. Bulstrode shrank from the direct falsehood of denying true statements. It was one thing to look back on forgiven sins, nay, to explain questionable conformity to lax customs, and another to enter deliberately on the necessity of falsehood. But, since Bulstrode did not speak, Raffles ran on, by way of using time to the utmost. "'I've not had such fine luck as you, by Jove. Things went confoundedly with me in New York. Those Yankees are cool hands, and a man of gentlemanly feelings has no chance with them. I married when I came back, a nice woman in the tobacco trade, very fond of me. But the trade was restricted, as we say. She had been settled there a good many years by a friend, but there was a son too much in the case. Josh and I never hit it off. However, I made the most of the position, and I've always taken my glass in good company. It's been all on the square with me. I'm as open as the day. You won't take it ill of me that I didn't look you up before. I've got a complaint that makes me a little dilatory. I thought you were trading and praying away in London still, and didn't find you there. But you see I was sent to you, Nick, perhaps for a blessing to both of us. Mr. Raffles ended with a jocose snuffle. No man felt his intellect more superior to religious cant, and if the cunning which calculates on the meanest feelings in men could be called intellect, he had his share, for under the blurting, rallying tone with which he spoke to Bulstrode, there was an evident selection of statements, as if they had been so many moves at chess. Meanwhile, Bulstrode had determined on his move and he said with gathered resolution you will do well to reflect mr raffles that it is possible for a man to overreach himself in the effort to secure undue advantage although i am not in any way bound to you i am willing to supply you with a regular annuity in quarterly payments so long as you fulfil a promise to remain at a distance from this neighbourhood it is in your power to choose if you insist on remaining here, even for a short time, you will get nothing from me. I shall decline to know you. Ha! ha! said Raffles, with an affected explosion. That reminds me of a droll dog of a thief who declined to know the constable. Your allusions are lost on me, sir, said Bulstrode, with white heat. The law has no hold on me either through your agency or any other. "'You can't understand a joke, my good fellow. I only meant that I should never decline to know you. But let us be serious. Your quarterly payment won't quite suit me. I like my freedom.' Here Raffles rose and stalked once or twice up and down the room, swinging his leg and assuming an air of masterly meditation. At last he stopped opposite Bulstrode and said, "'I'll tell you what.' 
give us a couple hundreds come that's modest and i'll go away honour bright pick up my portmanteau and go away but i shall not give up my liberty for a dirty annuity i shall come and go where i like perhaps it may suit me to stay away and correspond with a friend perhaps not have you the money with you no i have one hundred said bulstrode feeling the immediate riddance too great a relief to be rejected on the ground of future uncertainties i will forward you the other if you will mention an address no i'll wait here till you bring it said raffles i'll take a stroll and have a snack and you'll be back by that time mr bulstrode's sickly body shattered by the agitations he had gone through since the last evening made him feel abjectly in the power of this loud invulnerable man at that moment he snatched at a temporary repose to be won on any terms he was rising to do what raffles suggested when the latter said lifting up his finger as if with a sudden recollection i did have another look after sarah again though i didn't tell you i'd a tender conscience about that pretty young woman i didn't find her but i found out her husband's name and i made a note of it but hang it i lost my pocket-book however if i heard it i should know it again i've got my faculties as if i was in my prime but names wear out by jove sometimes i'm no better than a confounded tax-paper before the names are filled in however if i hear of her and her family you shall know nick you'd like to do something for her now she's your stepdaughter doubtless said mr bulstrode with the usual steady look of his light gray eyes though that might reduce my power of assisting you as he walked out of the room raffles winked slowly at his back and then turned towards the window to watch the banker riding away virtually at his command his lips first curled with a smile and then opened with a short triumphant laugh but what the deuce was the name he presently said half aloud scratching his head and wrinkling his brows horizontally he had not really cared or thought about this point of forgetfulness until it occurred to him in his invention of annoyances for bulstrode it began with an l it was almost all l's i fancy he went on with a sense that he was getting hold of the slippery name but the hold was too slight and he soon got tired of this mental chase for few men were more impatient of private occupation or more in need of making themselves continually heard than mr raffles he preferred using his time in pleasant conversation with the bailiff and the housekeeper from whom he gathered as much as he wanted to know about mr bulstrode's position in middlemarch after all however there was a dull space of time which needed relieving with bread and cheese and ale and when he was seated alone with these resources in the wainscoted parlour he suddenly slapped his knee and exclaimed ladislaw that action of memory which he had tried to set going and had abandoned in despair had suddenly completed itself without conscious effort a common experience agreeable as a completed sneeze even if the name remembered is of no value raffles immediately took out his pocket-book and wrote down the name not because he expected to use it 
but merely for the sake of not being at a loss if he ever did happen to want it. He was not going to tell Bulstrode, there was no actual good in telling, and to a mind like that of Mr. Raffles there is always probable good in a secret. He was satisfied with his present success, and by three o'clock that day he had taken up his portmanteau at the turnpike and mounted the coach, relieving Mr. Bulstrode's eyes of an ugly black spot on the landscape at Stone Court, but not relieving him of the dread that the black spot might reappear and become inseparable even from the vision of his hearth. End of chapter 53《The Widow and the Wife》Chapter 54 Ne gli occhi porta la mia donna amore, perché si va gentile io che la mira. Ove la passa, ogni om ver le si gira, e qui saluta fa tremar lo core. Sì che, passando il viso, tutto smore ed ogni suo difetto allor sospira. Fugon dinanzi a lei superbia e dira, Aiutatemi, donne, a farle onore, ogni dolcezza, ogni pensiero umile. Nasser nel core a chi parlar la sente, onde beato chi prima la vide. Quel che la par quando un poco sorride, non si può dicer né teneramente, si è nuovo miracolo gentile. Dante, la vita nuova. By that delightful morning, when the hayricks at Stone Court were scenting the air quite impartially, as if Mr. Raffles had been a guest worthy of finest incense, Dorothea had again taken up her abode at Lowick Manor. After three months, Freshet had become rather oppressive. To sit like a model for St. Catherine, looking rapturously at Celia's baby, would not do for many hours in the day, and to remain in that momentous babe's presence with persistent disregard was a course that could not have been tolerated in a childless sister. Dorothea would have been capable of carrying a baby joyfully for a mile, if there had been need, and of loving it the more tenderly for that labor. But to an aunt who does not recognize her infant nephew as Buddha, and has nothing to do for him but to admire, his behavior is apt to appear monotonous, and the interest of watching him exhaustible. This possibility was quite hidden from Celia, who felt that Dorothea's childless widowhood fell in quite prettily with the birth of little Arthur. Baby was named after Mr. Brooke. Dodo is just the creature not to mind about having anything of her own, children or anything, said Celia to her husband. And if she had had a baby, it never could have been such a dear as Arthur, could it, James? Not if it had been like Casabon, said Sir James conscious of some indirectness in his answer, and of holding a strictly private opinion as to the perfections of his firstborn. "'No, just imagine. Really, it was a mercy,' said Celia. "'And I think it is very nice for Dodo to be a widow. She can be just as fond of our baby as if it were her own, and she can have as many notions of her own as she likes.' "'It is a pity she was not a queen,' said the devout Sir James. "'But what should we have been, then?' "'We must have been something else,' said Celia, objecting to so laborious a flight of imagination. "'I like her better as she is.' 
Hence, when she found that Dorothea was making arrangements for her final departure to Lowick, Celia raised her eyebrows with disappointment, and in her quiet, unemphatic way shot a needle-arrow of sarcasm. "'What will you do at Lowick, Dodo? You say yourself there is nothing to be done there. Everybody is so clean and well off, it makes you quite melancholy. And here you have been so happy, going all about Tipton, with Mr. Garth into the worst backyards. And now Uncle is abroad, you and Mr. Garth can have it all your own way.' and I am sure James does everything you tell him. "'I shall often come here, and I shall see how Baby grows all the better,' said Dorothea. "'But you will never see him washed,' said Celia, "'and that is quite the best part of the day.' She was almost pouting. It did seem to her very hard in Dodo to go away from the baby when she might stay. "'Dear Kitty, I will come and stay all night on purpose,' said Dorothea. "'But I want to be alone now, and in my own home. "'I wish to know the Fairbrothers better, "'and to talk to Mr. Fairbrother about what there is to be done in Middlemarch.' "'Dorothea's native strength of will was no longer all converted into resolute submission. "'She had a great yearning to be at Lowick, and was simply determined to go, "'not feeling bound to tell all her reasons. "'But every one around her disapproved. "'Sir James was much pained.' and offered that they should all migrate to Cheltenham for a few months with the sacred ark, otherwise called a cradle. At that period a man could hardly know what to propose if Cheltenham were rejected. The dowager lady Chetham, just returning from a visit to her daughter in town, wished, at least, that Mrs. Vigo should be written to, and invited to accept the office of companion to Mrs. Casaubon. It was not credible that Dorothea, as a young widow, would think of living alone in the house at Lowick. Mrs. Vigo had been a reader and secretary to royal personages, and in point of knowledge and sentiments, even Dorothea could have nothing to object to her. Mrs. Cadwallader said privately, "'You will certainly go mad in that house alone, my dear. You will see visions. We have all got to exert ourselves a little to keep sane.' and call things by the same names as other people call them by. To be sure, for younger sons and women who have no money, it is a sort of provision to go mad. They are taken care of then. But you must not run into that. I dare say you are a little bored here with our good dowager, but think what a bore you might become yourself to your fellow-creatures if you were always playing tragedy queen and taking things sublimely. Sitting alone in that library at Lowick, you may fancy yourself ruling the weather. You must get a few people round you who wouldn't believe you if you told them. That is a good lowering medicine. I never called everything by the same name that all people about me did, said Dorothea stoutly. But I suppose you have found out your mistake, my dear, said Mrs. Cadwallader, and that is a proof of sanity. Dorothea was aware of the sting but it did not hurt her. No, she said, I still think that the greater part of the world is mistaken about many things. Surely one may be sane and yet think so, since the greater part of the world has often come round from its opinion. Mrs. Cadwallader said no more on that point to Dorothea, but to her husband she remarked, It will be well for her to marry again as soon as it is proper, if one could get her among the right people. Of course the Chettams would not wish it, but I see clearly a husband is the best thing to keep her in order. 
If we were not so poor, I would invite Lord Triton. He will be Marquis some day, and there is no denying that she would make a good marchioness. She looks handsomer than ever in her mourning. My dear Eleanor, do let the poor woman alone. Such contrivances are of no use, said the easy rector. No use? How are matches made, except by bringing men and women together? And it is a shame that her uncle should have run away and shut up the Grange just now. There ought to be plenty of eligible matches invited to Freshet and the Grange. Lord Triton is precisely the man, full of plans for making the people happy in a soft-headed sort of way. That would just suit Mrs. Casaubon. Let Mrs. Casaubon choose for herself, Eleanor. That is the nonsense you wise men talk. How can she choose if she has no variety to choose from? A woman's choice usually means taking the only man she can get. Mark my words, Humphrey. If her friends don't exert themselves, there will be a worse business than the Casabon business yet. For heaven's sake, don't touch on that topic, Eleanor. It is a very sore point with Sir James. He would be deeply offended if you entered on it to him unnecessarily. I have never entered on it, said Mrs. Cadwallader, opening her hands. Celia told me all about the will at the beginning, without any asking of mine. Yes, yes, but they want the thing hushed up, and I understand that the young fellow is going out of the neighborhood. Mrs. Cadwallader said nothing, but gave her husband three significant nods, with a very sarcastic expression in her dark eyes. Dorothea quietly persisted in spite of remonstrance and persuasion. So by the end of June the shutters were all opened at Lowick Manor, and the morning gazed calmly into the library, shining on the rows of notebooks as it shines on the weary waste planted with huge stones, the mute memorial of a forgotten faith, and the evening laden with roses entering silently into the blue-green boudoir where Dorothea chose oftenest to sit. At first she walked into every room, questioning the eighteen months of her married life, and carrying on her thoughts as if they were a speech to be heard by her husband. Then she lingered in the library, and could not be at rest till she had carefully ranged all the notebooks as she imagined that he would wish to see them, in orderly sequence. The pity which had been the restraining, compelling motive in her life with him still clung about his image even while she remonstrated with him in indignant thought, and told him that he was unjust. One little act of hers may perhaps be smiled at as superstitious. The synoptical tabulation for the use of Mrs. Casaubon she carefully enclosed and sealed, writing within the envelope, I could not use it. Do you not see now that I could not submit my soul to yours by working hopelessly at what I have no belief in? Dorothea. Then she deposited the paper in her own desk. That silent colloquy was perhaps only the more earnest, because underneath and through it all there was always the deep longing which had really determined her to come to Lowick. The longing was to see Will Ladislaw. She did not know any good that could come of their meeting. She was helpless. Her hands had been tied from making up to him for any unfairness in his lot but her soul thirsted to see him. How could it be otherwise? If a princess in the days of enchantment had seen a four-footed creature from among those which live in herds come to her once, 
and again with a human gaze which rested upon her with choice and beseeching, what would she think of in her journeying? What would she look for when the herds passed her? Surely for the gaze which had found her, and which she would know again. Life would be no better than candlelight tinsel and daylight rubbish, if our spirits were not touched by what has been, to issues of longing and constancy. It was true that Dorothea wanted to know the fair brothers better, and especially to talk to the new rector, but also true that, remembering what Lydgate had told her about Will Ladislaw and little Miss Noble, she counted on Will's coming to Lowick to see the Fairbrother family. The very first Sunday, before she entered the church, she saw him as she had seen him the last time she was there, alone in the clergyman's pew, but when she entered his figure was gone. In the weekdays when she went to see the ladies at the rectory, she listened in vain for some word that they might let fall about Will, but it seemed to her that Mrs. Fairbrother talked of everyone else in the neighborhood and out of it. "'Probably some of Mr. Fairbrother's Middlemarch hearers may follow him to Lowick sometimes. Do you not think so?' said Dorothea, rather despising herself for having a secret motive in asking the question. "'If they are wise, they will, Mrs. Casabon, said the old lady. I see that you set a right value on my son's preaching. His grandfather on my side was an excellent clergyman, but his father was in the law, most exemplary and honest nevertheless, which is a reason for our never being rich. They say fortune is a woman and capricious, but sometimes she is a good woman and gives to those who merit, which has been the case with you, Mrs. Casabon, who have given a living to my son." Mrs. Fairbrother recurred to her knitting with a dignified satisfaction in her neat little effort at oratory, but this was not what Dorothea wanted to hear. Poor thing! She did not even know whether Will Ladislaw was still at Middlemarch, and there was no one whom she dared to ask, unless it were Lydgate. But just now she could not see Lydgate without sending for him, or going to seek him. Perhaps Will Ladislaw, having heard of that strange ban against him left by Mr. Casaubon, had felt it better that he and she should not meet again, and perhaps she was wrong to wish for a meeting that others might find many good reasons against. Still, I do wish it, came at the end of those wise reflections, as naturally as a sob after holding the breath. And the meeting did happen, but in a formal way quite unexpected by her. One morning, about eleven, Dorothea was seated in her boudoir with a map of the land attached to the manor and other papers before her, which were to help her in making an exact statement for herself of her income and affairs. She had not yet applied herself to the work, but was seated with her hands folded on her lap, looking out along the avenue of limes to the distant fields. Every leaf was at rest in the sunshine. The familiar scene was changeless and seemed to represent the prospect of her life, full of motiveless ease, motiveless if her own energy could not seek out reasons for ardent action. The widow's cap of those times made an oval frame for the face, and had a crown standing up. The dress was an experiment in the utmost laying on of crape, but this heavy solemnity of clothing made her face look all the younger,
with its recovered bloom and the sweet inquiring candor of her eyes. Her reverie was broken by Tantrip, who came to say that Mr. Ladislaw was below, and begged permission to see Madam if it were not too early. "'I will see him,' said Dorothea, rising immediately. "'Let him be shown into the drawing-room.' The drawing-room was the most neutral room in the house to her, the one least associated with the trials of her married life. The damask matched the woodwork, which was all white and gold. There were two tall mirrors and tables with nothing on them. In brief, it was a room where you had no reason for sitting in one place rather than in another. It was below the boudoir, and had also a bow-window looking out on the avenue. But when Pratt showed Will Ladislaw into the window it was open, and a winged visitor, buzzing in and out now and then, without minding the furniture, made the room look less formal and uninhabited. "'Glad to see you here again, sir,' said Pratt, lingering to adjust a blind. "'I am only come to say good-bye, Pratt,' said Will, who wished even the butler to know that he was too proud to hang about Mrs. Casaubon, now she was a rich widow. "'Very sorry to hear it, sir,' said Pratt, retiring. Of course, as a servant who was to be told nothing, she knew the fact of which Ladislaw was still ignorant, and had drawn his inferences. Indeed, had not differed from his betrothed tantrip when she said, "'Your master was as jealous as a fiend, and no reason. Madam would look higher than Mr. Ladislaw, else I don't know her. Mrs. Cadwallader's maid says there's a lord coming who is to marry her when the morning's over.' There were not many moments for Will to walk about with his hat in his hand before Dorothea entered. The meeting was very different from that first meeting in Rome, when Will had been embarrassed and Dorothea calm. This time he felt miserable but determined, while she was in a state of agitation which could not be hidden. Just outside the door she had felt that this longed-for meeting was after all too difficult and when she saw Will advancing towards her, the deep blush which was rare in her came on with painful suddenness. Neither of them knew how it was, but neither of them spoke. She gave her hand for a moment, and then they went to sit down near the window, she on one settee and he on another opposite. Will was peculiarly uneasy. It seemed to him not like Dorothea that the mere fact of her being a widow should cause such a change in her manner of receiving him, and he knew of no other condition which could have affected their previous relation to each other, except that, as his imagination at once told him, her friends might have been poisoning her mind with their suspicions of him. "'I hope I have not presumed too much in calling,' said Will. "'I could not bear to leave the neighborhood and begin a new life without seeing you to say good-bye.' "'Surely not. I should have thought it unkind if you had not wished to see me,' said Dorothea, her habit of speaking with perfect genuineness asserting itself through all her uncertainty and agitation. "'Are you going away immediately?' "'Very soon, I think. I intend to go to town and eat my dinners as a barrister, since, they say, that is the preparation for all public business. There will be a great deal of political work to be done by and by.' and I mean to try and do some of it. Other men have managed to win an honorable position for themselves without family or money. 
and that will make it all the more honorable said dorothea ardently besides you have so many talents i have heard from my uncle how well you speak in public so that every one is sorry when you leave off and how clearly you can explain things and you care that justice should be done to every one i am so glad when we were in rome i thought you only cared for poetry and art and the things that adorn life for us who are well off but now i know you think about the rest of the world while she was speaking dorothea had lost her personal embarrassment and had become like her former self she looked at will with a direct glance full of delighted confidence you approve of my going away for years then and never coming here again till i have made myself of some mark in the world said will trying hard to reconcile the utmost pride with the utmost effort to get an expression of strong feeling from dorothea she was not aware how long it was before she answered she had turned her head and was looking out of the window on the rose bushes which seemed to have in them the summers of all the years when will would be away this was not judicious behavior but dorothea never thought of studying her manners she thought only of bowing to a sad necessity which divided her from will those first words of his about intentions had seemed to make everything clear to her he knew she supposed all about mr casaubon's final conduct in relation to him and it had come to him with the same sort of shock as to herself he had never felt more than friendship for her had never had anything in his mind to justify what she felt to be her husband's outrage on the feelings of both and that friendship he still felt something which may be called an inward silent sob had gone on in dorothea before she said with a pure voice just trembling in the last words as if only from its liquid flexibility yes it must be right for you to do as you say i shall be very happy when i hear that you have made your value felt but you must have patience it will perhaps be a long while will never quite knew how it was that he saved himself from falling down at her feet when the long while came forth with its gentle tremor he used to say that the horrible hue and surface of her crape dress was most likely the sufficient controlling force he sat still however and only said i shall never hear from you and you will forget all about me no said dorothea i shall never forget you i have never forgotten any one whom i once knew my life has never been crowded and it seems not likely to be so and i have a great deal of space for memory at lowick haven't i she smiled good god will burst out passionately rising with his hat still in his hand and walking away to a marble table where he suddenly turned and leaned his back against it the blood had mounted to his face and neck and he looked almost angry it had seemed to him as if they were like two creatures slowly turning to marble in each other's presence while their hearts were conscious and their eyes were yearning but there was no help for it it should never be true of him that in this meeting to which he had come with bitter resolution he had ended by a confession which might be interpreted into asking for her fortune moreover 
it was actually true that he was fearful of the effect which such confessions might have on dorothea herself she looked at him from that distance in some trouble imagining that there might have been an offence in her words but all the while there was a current of thought in her about his probable want of money and the impossibility of her helping him if her uncle had been at home something might have been done through him it was this preoccupation with the hardship of will's wanting money while she had what ought to have been his share which led her to say seeing that he remained silent and looked away from her i wonder whether you would like to have that miniature which hangs upstairs i mean that beautiful miniature of your grandmother i think it is not right for me to keep it if you would wish to have it it is wonderfully like you you are very good said will irritably no i don't mind about it it is not very consoling to have one's own likeness it would be more consoling if others wanted to have it i thought you would like to cherish her memory i th thought dorothea broke off in an instant her imagination suddenly warning her away from aunt julia's history you would surely like to have the miniature as a family memorial why should i have that when i have nothing else a man with only a portmanteau for his stowage must keep his memorials in his head will spoke at random he was merely venting his petulance it was a little too exasperating to have his grandmother's portrait offered him at that moment but to dorothea's feeling his words had a peculiar sting she rose and said with a touch of indignation as well as hauteur you are the much happier of us two mr ladislaw to have nothing will was startled whatever the words might be the tone seemed like a dismissal and quitting his leaning posture he walked a little way towards her their eyes met but with a strange questioning gravity something was keeping their minds aloof and each was left to conjecture what was in the other will had really never thought of himself as having a claim of inheritance on the property which was held by dorothea and would have required a narrative to make him understand her present feeling i never felt it a misfortune to have nothing till now he said but poverty may be as bad as leprosy if it divides us from what we most care for the words cut dorothea to the heart and made her relent she answered in a tone of sad fellowship sorrow comes in so many ways two years ago i had no notion of that i mean of the unexpected way in which trouble comes and ties our hands and makes us silent when we long to speak i used to despise women a little for not shaping their lives more and doing better things i was very fond of doing things as i liked but i have almost given it up she ended smiling playfully i have not given up doing as i like but i can very seldom do it said will he was standing two yards from her with his mind full of contradictory desires and resolves desiring some unmistakable proof that she loved him and yet dreading the position into which such a proof might bring him the thing one most longs for may be surrounded with conditions that would be intolerable at this moment pratt entered and said sir james chettam is in the library madam 
"'Ask Sir James to come in here,' said Dorothea immediately. It was as if the same electric shock had passed through her and Will. Each of them felt proudly resistant, and neither looked at the other, while they awaited Sir James' entrance. After shaking hands with Dorothea, he bowed as slightly as possible to Ladislaw, who repaid the slightness exactly, and then going towards Dorothea said, "'I must say good-bye, Mrs. Casaubon, and probably for a long while.' Dorothea put out her hand and said her good-bye cordially. The sense that Sir James was depreciating Will and behaving rudely to him roused her resolution and dignity. There was no touch of confusion in her manner. And when Will had left the room, she looked with such calm self-possession at Sir James, saying, "'How is Celia?' that he was obliged to behave as if nothing had annoyed him. And what would be the use of behaving otherwise? Indeed, Sir James shrank with so much dislike from the association, even in thought of Dorothea with Ladislaw as her possible lover, that he would himself have wished to avoid an outward show of displeasure, which would have recognized the disagreeable possibility. If any one had asked him why he shrank in that way, I am not sure that he would at first have said anything fuller or more precise than, "'That Ladislaw!' Though, on reflection, he might have urged that Mr. Casaubon's codicil, barring Dorothea's marriage with Will, except under a penalty, was enough to cast unfitness over any relation at all between them. His aversion was all the stronger, because he felt himself unable to interfere. But Sir James was a power in a way unguessed by himself. Entering at that moment, he was an incorporation of the strongest reasons through which Will's pride became a repellent force, keeping him asunder from Dorothea. End of chapter 54《Chapter fifty five of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Hath she her faults? I would you had them too. They are the fruity must of soundest wine, or say they are regenerating fire, such as hath turned the dense black element into a crystal pathway for the sun. If youth is the season of hope, it is often so only in the sense that our elders are hopeful about us, for no age is so apt as youth to think its emotions, partings, and resolves are the last of their kind. Each crisis seems final simply because it is new. We are told that the oldest inhabitants in Peru do not cease to be agitated by the earthquakes, but they probably see beyond each shock and reflect that there are plenty more to come. To Dorothea, still in that time of youth when the eyes, with their long full lashes, look out after their rain of tears, unsoiled and unwearied, as a freshly opened passion-flower, that morning's parting with Will Ladislaw seemed to be the close of their personal relations. He was going away into the distance of unknown years, and if ever he came back, he would be another man. The actual state of his mind— his proud resolve to give the lie beforehand to any suspicion that he would play the needy adventurer seeking a rich woman, lay quite out of her imagination, 
and she had interpreted all his behavior easily enough by her supposition that Mr. Casaubon's codicil seemed to him, as it did to her, a gross and cruel interdict on any active friendship between them. Their young delight in speaking to each other, and saying what no one else would care to hear, was forever ended, and became a treasure of the past. For this very reason she dwelt on it without inward check. That unique happiness, too, was dead, and in its shadowed, silent chamber she might vent the passionate grief which she herself wondered at. For the first time she took down the miniature from the wall and kept it before her, liking to blend the woman who had been too hardly judged with the grandson whom her own heart and judgment defended. Can any one who has rejoiced in woman's tenderness think it a reproach to her that she took the oval picture in her palm and made a bed for it there, and leaned her cheek upon it, as if that would soothe the creatures who had suffered unjust condemnation? She did not know then that it was love who had come to her briefly, as in a dream before awaking, with the hues of morning on his wings that it was love to whom she was sobbing her farewell as his image was banished by the blameless rigor of irresistible day. She only felt that there was something irrevocably amiss and lost in her lot, and her thoughts about the future were all the more readily shapen into resolve. Ardent souls, ready to construct their coming lives, are apt to commit themselves to the fulfillment of their own visions. One day that she went to Freshet to fulfill her promise of staying all night and seeing baby washed, Mrs. Cadwallader came to dine, the rector being gone on a fishing excursion. It was a warm evening, and even in the delightful drawing-room, where the fine old turf sloped from the open window towards a lilied pool and well-planted mounds, the heat was enough to make Celia, in her white muslin and light curls, reflect with pity on what Dodo must feel in her black dress and close cap. But this was not until some episodes with Baby were over, and had left her mind at leisure. She had seated herself and taken up a fan for some time before she said, in her quiet guttural, "'Dear Dodo, do throw off that cap. I am sure your dress must make you feel ill.' "'I'm so used to the cap. It has become a sort of shell,' said Dorothea, smiling. I feel rather bare and exposed when it is off. "'I must see you without it. It makes us all warm,' said Celia, throwing down her fan and going to Dorothea. It was a pretty picture to see this little lady in white muslin unfastening the widow's cap from her more majestic sister and tossing it on to a chair. Just as the coils and braids of dark brown hair had been set free, Sir James entered the room. He looked at the released head and said, "'Ah!' in a tone of satisfaction. "'It was I who did it, James,' said Celia. "'Dodo need not make such a slavery of her mourning. She need not wear that cap any more among her friends.' "'My dear Celia,' said Lady Chetham, "'a widow must wear her mourning at least a year.' "'Not if she marries again before the end of it,' said Mrs. Cadwallader, who had some pleasure in startling her good friend the dowager. Sir James was annoyed, and leaned forward to play with Celia's Maltese dog. "'That is very rare, I hope,' said Lady Chetham, in a tone intended to guard against such events. "'No friend of ours ever committed herself in that way except Mrs. Beaver, 
and it was very painful to Lord Grinsell when she did so. Her first husband was so objectionable, which made it the greater wonder. And severely she was punished for it. They said Captain Beaver dragged her about by the hair and held up loaded pistols at her. "'Oh, if she took the wrong man,' said Mrs. Cadwallader, who was in a decidedly wicked mood. "'Marriage is always bad, then, first or second. Priority is a poor recommendation in a husband if he has got no other. I would rather have a good second husband than an indifferent first. "'My dear, your clever tongue runs away with you,' said Lady Chetham. I am sure you would be the last woman to marry again prematurely if our dear rector were taken away. Oh, I make no vows. It might be a necessary economy. It is lawful to marry again, I suppose, else we might as well be Hindus instead of Christians. Of course, if a woman accepts the wrong man, she must take the consequences, and one who does it twice over deserves her fate. But if she can marry blood, beauty, and bravery, the sooner the better. I think the subject of our conversation is very ill-chosen, said Sir James, with a look of disgust. Suppose we change it. Not on my account, Sir James, said Dorothea, determined not to lose the opportunity of freeing herself from certain oblique references to excellent matches. If you are speaking on my behalf, I can assure you that no question can be more indifferent and impersonal to me than second marriage. It is no more to me than if you talked of women going fox-hunting. Whether it is admirable in them or not, I shall not follow them. Pray let Mrs. Cadwallader amuse herself on that subject as much as on any other. "'My dear Mrs. Casabon,' said Lady Chetham, in her stateliest way, "'you do not, I hope, think that there was any allusion to you in my mentioning Mrs. Beaver. It was only an instance that occurred to me.' She was stepdaughter to Lord Grinsell. He married Mrs. Teveroy for his second wife. There could be no possible allusion to you. Oh, no, said Celia. Nobody chose the subject. It all came out of Dodo's cap. Mrs. Cadwallader only said what was quite true. A woman could not be married in a widow's cap, James. Hush, my dear, said Mrs. Cadwallader. I will not offend again. I will not even refer to Dido or Zenobia. Only, what are we to talk about? I, for my part, object to the discussion of human nature, because that is the nature of rectors' wives. Later in the evening, after Mrs. Cadwallader had gone, Celia said privately to Dorothea, Really, Dodo, taking your cap off made you like yourself again in more ways than one. You spoke up just as you used to, when anything was said to displease you but I could hardly make out whether it was James that you thought wrong, or Mrs. Cadwallader. Neither, said Dorothea. James spoke out of delicacy to me, but he was mistaken in supposing that I minded what Mrs. Cadwallader said. I should only mind if there were a law obliging me to take any piece of blood and beauty that she or anybody else recommended. But you know, Dodo, if you ever did marry— it would be all the better to have blood and beauty, said Celia, reflecting that Mr. Casaubon had not been richly endowed with those gifts, and that it would be well to caution Dorothea in time. Don't be anxious, Kitty. I have quite other thoughts about my life. I shall never marry again, said Dorothea, touching her sister's chin, 
and looking at her with indulgent affection. Celia was nursing her baby, and Dorothea had come to say good-night to her. "'Really, quite?' said Celia. "'Not anybody at all? If he were very wonderful indeed?' Dorothea shook her head slowly. "'Not anybody at all. I have delightful plans. I should like to take a great deal of land and drain it, and make a little colony, where everybody should work, and all the work should be done well. I should know every one of the people and be their friend. I am going to have great consultations with Mr. Garth. He can tell me almost everything I want to know. "'Then you will be happy if you have a plan, Dodo?' said Celia. "'Perhaps little Arthur will like plans when he grows up, and then he can help you.' Sir James was informed that same night that Dorothea was really quite set against marrying anybody at all, and was going to take to all sorts of plans, just like what she used to have. Sir James made no remark. To his secret feeling, there was something repulsive in a woman's second marriage, and no match would prevent him from feeling it a sort of desecration for Dorothea. He was aware that the world would regard such a sentiment as preposterous, especially in relation to a woman of one-and-twenty, the practice of the world being to treat of a young widow's second marriage as certain and probably near, and to smile with meaning if the widow acts accordingly. But if Dorothea did choose to espouse her solitude, he felt that the resolution would well become her. End of chapter 55《Chapter Fifty Six of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. How happy is he born and taught that serveth not another's will, whose armor is his honest thought, and simple truth his only skill. This man is freed from servile bands, of hope to rise or fear to fall, lord of himself though not of lands and having nothing yet hath all sir henry wotton dorothea's confidence in caleb garth's knowledge which had begun on her hearing that he approved of her cottages had grown fast during her stay at freshet sir james having induced her to take rides over the two estates in company with himself and caleb who quite returned her admiration and told his wife that mrs casaubon had a head for business most uncommon in a woman it must be remembered that by business Caleb never meant money transactions, but the skilful application of labor. "'Most uncommon,' repeated Caleb. "'She said a thing I often used to think myself when I was a lad. Mr. Garth, I should like to feel, if I lived to be old, that I had improved a great piece of land and built a great many good cottages, because the work is of a healthy kind while it is being done, and after it is done, men are the better for it. Those were the very words. She sees into things in that way. But womanly, I hope, said Mrs. Garth, half suspecting that Mrs. Casaubon might not hold the true principle of subordination. Oh, you can't think, said Caleb, shaking his head. You would like to hear her speak, Susan. She speaks in such plain words, and a voice like music. Bless me, it reminds me of bits in the Messiah and straightway there appeared a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying. It has a tone with it that satisfies your ear. 
Caleb was very fond of music, and when he could afford it went to hear an oratorio that came within his reach, returning from it with a profound reverence for this mighty structure of tones, which made him sit meditatively, looking on the floor and throwing much unutterable language into his outstretched hands. With this good understanding between them, it was natural that Dorothea asked Mr. Garth to undertake any business connected with the three farms and the numerous tenements attached to Lowick Manor. Indeed, his expectation of getting work for two was being fast fulfilled. As he said, business breeds. And one form of business which was beginning to breed just then was the construction of railways. A projected line was to run through Lowick Parish, where the cattle had hitherto grazed in a peace unbroken by astonishment. And thus it happened that the infant struggles of the railway system entered into the affairs of Caleb Garth, and determined the course of this history with regard to two persons who were dear to him. The submarine railway may have its difficulties, but the bed of the sea is not divided among various landed proprietors with claims for damages not only measurable but sentimental. In the hundred to which Middlemarch belonged, railways were as exciting a topic as the Reform Bill, or the imminent horrors of cholera, and those who held the most decided views on the subject were women and landholders. Women both old and young regarded travelling by steam as presumptuous and dangerous, and argued against it by saying that nothing should induce them to get into a railway carriage, while proprietors, differing from each other in their arguments, as much as Mr. Solomon Featherstone differed from Lord Midlicote, were yet unanimous in the opinion that in selling land, whether to the enemy of mankind or to a company obliged to purchase, these pernicious agencies must be made to pay a very high price to landowners for permission to injure mankind. But the slower wits, such as Mr. Solomon and Mrs. Wall, who both occupied land of their own, took a long time to arrive at this conclusion, their minds halting at the vivid conception of what it would be to cut the big pasture in two, and turn it into three-cornered bits, which would be know-how, while accommodation bridges and high payments were remote and incredible. "'The cows will all cast their calves, brother,' said Mrs. Wall, in a tone of deep melancholy. "'If the railway comes across the near close, and I shouldn't wonder at the mare, too, if she was in foal. It's a poor tale if a widow's property is to be spaded away, and the law say nothing to it. What's to hinder em from cutting right and left if they begin? It's well known I can't fight. The best way would be to say nothing, and set somebody on to send em away with a flea in their ear, when they came spying and measuring, said Solomon. Folks did that about brassing, by what I can understand. It's all a pretense, if the truth was known, about their being forced to take one way. Let em go cutting in another parish. And I don't believe in any pay to make amends for bringing a lot of ruffians to trample your crops. Where's a company's pocket? Brother Peter, God forgive him, got money out of a company, said Mrs. Wall. But that was for the manganese. That wasn't for railways to blow you to pieces right and left. Well, there's this to be said, Jane, Mr. Solomon concluded. 
lowering his voice in a cautious manner. "'The more spokes we put in their wheel, the more they'll pay us to let em go on, if they must come whether or not.' This reasoning of Mr. Solomon's was perhaps less thorough than he imagined. His cunning, bearing about the same relation to the course of railways as the cunning of a diplomatist bears to the general chill or catarrh of the solar system. But he set about acting on his views in a thoroughly diplomatic manner, by stimulating suspicion. His side of Lowick was the most remote from the village, and the houses of the laboring people were either lone cottages or were collected in a hamlet called Frick where a water-mill and some stone pits made a little centre of slow, heavy-shouldered industry. In the absence of any precise idea as to what railways were, public opinion in Frick was against them, for the human mind in that grassy corner had not the proverbial tendency to admire the unknown, holding rather that it was likely to be against the poor man, and that suspicion was the only wise attitude with regard to it. Even the rumor of reform had not excited any millennial expectations in Frick, there being no definite promise in it, as of gratuitous grains to fatten Hiram Ford's pig, or of a publican at the weights and scales who would brew beer for nothing, or of an offer on the part of the three neighboring farmers to raise wages during winter. And without distinct good of this kind in its promises, Reform seemed on a footing with the bragging of peddlers, which was a hint for distrust to every knowing person. The men of Frick were not ill-fed, and were less given to fanaticism than to a strong muscular suspicion, less inclined to believe that they were peculiarly cared for by heaven than to regard heaven itself as rather disposed to take them in, a disposition observable in the weather. Thus the mind of Frick was exactly the sort for Mr. Solomon Featherstone to work upon, he having more plenteous ideas of the same order, with a suspicion of heaven and earth which was better fed and more entirely at leisure. Solomon was overseer of the roads at that time, and his slow-paced cob often took his rounds by Frick to look at the workmen getting the stones there, pausing with a mysterious deliberation which might have misled you into supposing that he had some other reason for staying than the mere want of impulse to move. After looking for a long while at any work that was going on, he would raise his eyes a little and look at the horizon. Finally, he would shake his bridle, touch his horse with the whip, and get it to move slowly onward. The hour-hand of a clock was quick by comparison with Mr. Solomon who had an agreeable sense that he could afford to be slow. He was in the habit of pausing for a cautious, vaguely designing chat with every hedger or ditcher on his way, and was especially willing to listen even to news which he had heard before, feeling himself at an advantage over all narrators in partially disbelieving them. One day, however, he got into a dialogue with Hiram Ford, a wagoner, in which he himself contributed information. He wished to know whether Hiram had seen fellows with staves and instruments spying about. They called themselves railroad people, but there was no telling what they were or what they meant to do. 
the least they pretended was that they were going to cut Lowick Parish into sixes and sevens. "'Why, there'll be no stirrin' from one place to another,' said Hiram, thinking of his wagons and horses. "'Not a bit,' said Mr. Solomon, "'and cutting up fine land such as this parish. Let them go into Tipton, say I. But there's no knowing what there is at the bottom of it. Traffic is what they put forward, but it's to do harm to the land and the poor man in the long run. "'Why, they're London chaps, I reckon,' said Hiram, who had a dim notion of London as a centre of hostility to the country. "'Aye, to be sure, and in some parts against brassing, by what I've heard say. The folk fell on em when they were spying, and broke their peepholes as they carry, and drove em away, so as they knew better than come again.' "'It were good fun, I'd be bound,' said Hiram, whose fun was much restricted by circumstances. "'Well, I wouldn't meddle with em myself,' said Solomon. "'But some say this country's seen its best days, and the sign is, as it's being overrun with these fellows trampling right and left, and wanting to cut it up into railways, and all for the big traffic to swallow up the little, so as there shan't be a team left on the land, nor a whip to crack.' "'I'll crack my whip about their earn before they bring it to that, though,' said Hiram, while Mr. Solomon, shaking his bridle, moved onward. Nettleseed needs no digging. The ruin of this countryside by railroads was discussed, not only at the weights and scales, but in the hay-field, where the muster of working hands gave opportunities for talk such as were rarely had through the rural year. One morning, not long after that interview between Mr. Fairbrother and Mary Garth, in which she confessed to him her feeling for Fred Vincy, it happened that her father had some business which took him to Yodrell's farm in the direction of Frick. It was to measure and value an outlying piece of land belonging to Lowick Manor, which Caleb expected to dispose of advantageously for Dorothea. It must be confessed that his bias was towards getting the best possible terms from railroad companies. He put up his gig at Yodrell's, and, in walking with his assistant and measuring chain to the scene of his work, he encountered the party of the company's agents, who were adjusting their spirit level. After a little chat he left them, observing that by and by they would reach him again where he was going to measure. It was one of those grey mornings after light rains, which become delicious about twelve o'clock, when the clouds part a little, and the scent of the earth is sweet along the lanes and by the hedgerows. The scent would have been sweeter to Fred Vincy, who was coming along the lanes on horseback, if his mind had not been worried by unsuccessful efforts to imagine what he was going to do, with his father on one side, expecting him straightway to enter the church, with Mary on the other threatening to forsake him if he did enter it, and with the working-day world showing no eager need whatever of a young gentleman without capital and generally unskilled. It was the harder to Fred's disposition because his father, satisfied that he was no longer rebellious, was in good humour with him, and had sent him on this pleasant ride to see after some greyhounds. Even when he had fixed on what he should do, there would be the task of telling his father. But it must be admitted that the fixing, which had to come first, was the more difficult task. 
what secular avocation on earth was there for a young man whose friends could not get him an appointment which was at once gentlemanly lucrative and to be followed without special knowledge riding along the lanes by frick in this mood and slackening his pace while he reflected whether he should venture to go round by lowick parsonage to call on mary he could see over the hedges from one field to another suddenly a noise roused his attention and on the far side of a field on his left hand he could see six or seven men in smock-frocks with hay-forks in their hands making an offensive approach towards the four railway agents who were facing them while caleb garth and his assistant were hastening across the field to join the threatened group fred delayed a few moments by having to find the gate could not gallop up to the spot before the party in smock-frocks whose work of turning the hay had not been too pressing after swallowing their midday beer were driving the men in coats before them with their hay-forks while caleb garth's assistant a lad of seventeen who had snatched up the spirit level at caleb's order had been knocked down and seemed to be lying helpless the coated men had the advantage as runners and fred covered their retreat by getting in front of the smock-frocks and charging them suddenly enough to throw their chase into confusion what do you confounded fools mean shouted fred pursuing the divided group in a zigzag and cutting right and left with his whip i'll swear to every one of you before the magistrate you've knocked the lad down and killed him for what i know you'll every one of you be hanged at the next assizes if you don't mind said fred who afterwards laughed heartily as he remembered his own phrases the laborers had been driven through the gateway into their hayfield and fred had checked his horse when hiram ford observing himself at a safe challenging distance turned back and shouted a defiance which he did not know to be homeric you're a coward you are get off your horse young mister and i'll have a round wi you i will you daren't come out without your hoss and whip i'd soon knock the breath out on you i would wait a minute and i'll come back presently and have a round with you all in turn if you like said fred who felt confidence in his power of boxing with his dearly beloved brethren but just now he wanted to hasten back to caleb and the prostrate youth the lad's ankle was strained and he was in much pain from it but he was no further hurt and fred placed him on the horse that he might ride to yodrell's and be taken care of there let them put the horse in the stable and tell the surveyors they can come back for their traps said fred the ground is clear now no no said caleb here's a breakage they'll have to give up for to-day and it will be as well here take the things before you on the horse tom they'll see you coming and they'll turn back i'm glad i happen to be here at the right moment mr garth said fred as tom rode away no knowing what might have happened if the cavalry had not come up in time ay ay it was lucky said caleb speaking rather absently and looking towards the spot where he had been at work at the moment of interruption but deuce take it this is what comes of men being fools i'm hindered of my day's work i can't get along without somebody to help me with the measuring chain however he was beginning to move towards the spot with a look of vexation as if he had forgotten fred's presence but suddenly he turned round and said quickly what have you got to do to-day young fellow 
"'Nothing, Mr. Garth. I'll help you with pleasure. Can I?' said Fred, with a sense that he should be courting Mary when he was helping her father. "'Well, you mustn't mind stooping and getting hot.' "'I don't mind anything. Only I want to go first and have a round with that hulky fellow who turned to challenge me. It would be a good lesson for him. I shall not be five minutes.' "'Nonsense!' said Caleb, with his most peremptory intonation. "'I shall go and speak to the men myself. It's all ignorance. Somebody has been telling them lies. The poor fools don't know any better.' "'I shall go with you, then,' said Fred. "'No, no, stay where you are. I don't want your young blood. I can take care of myself.' Caleb was a powerful man, and knew little of any fear except the fear of hurting others, and the fear of having to speechify but he felt it his duty at this moment to try and give a little harangue. There was a striking mixture in him, which came from his having always been a hard-working man himself, of rigorous notions about workmen and practical indulgence towards them. To do a good day's work, and to do it well, he held to be part of their welfare, as it was the chief part of his own happiness, but he had a strong sense of fellowship with them, when he advanced towards the laborers, they had not gone to work again, but were standing in that form of rural grouping which consists in each turning a shoulder towards the other, at a distance of two or three yards. They looked rather sulkily at Caleb, who walked quickly with one hand in his pocket, and the other thrust between the buttons of his waistcoat, and had his everyday mild air when he paused among them. "'Why, my lads, how's this?' he began taking as usual to brief phrases, which seemed pregnant to himself, because he had many thoughts lying under them, like the abundant roots of a plant that just manages to peep above the water. "'How came you to make such a mistake as this? Somebody's been telling you lies. You thought those men up there wanted to do mischief?' "'Aw,' was the answer, dropped at intervals by each according to his degree of unreadiness. "'Nonsense!' no such thing they're looking out to see which way the railroad is to take now my lads you can't hinder the railroad it will be made whether you like it or not and if you go fighting against it you'll get yourselves into trouble the law gives those men leave to come here on the land the owner has nothing to say against it and if you meddle with them you'll have to do with the constable and justice blakesley and with the handcuffs and middlemarch jail and you might be in for it now if anybody informed against you. Caleb paused here, and perhaps the greatest orator could not have chosen either his pause or his images better for the occasion. But come, you didn't mean any harm. Somebody told you the railroad was a bad thing. That was a lie. It may do a bit of harm here and there, to this and to that, and so does the sun in heaven. But the railway's a good thing, "'Ah, good for the big folks to make money out on,' said old Timothy Cooper, who had stayed behind, turning his hay while the others had been gone on their spree. "'I ain't seen lots of things turn up sin I were a young un. The war, and the peace, and the canals, and old King George, and the region, and the new King George, and the new one has got a new name. And it's been all alike to the poor man. What's the canals been to him?' They ain't brought him neither meat nor bacon nor wage to lay by, if he didn't save it with clem in his own inside. Times have got wasser for him sin I were a young un. 
and so it'll be with the railroads. They'll only leave the poor man further behind. But them are fools is metal, and so I told the chaps here. This is the big folks' world, this is. But you're for the big folks, Mr. Garth, you are. Timothy was a wiry old laborer, of a type lingering in those times, who had his savings in a stocking foot, lived in a lone cottage, and was not to be wrought on by any oratory, having as little of the feudal spirit, and believing as little as if he had not been totally unacquainted with the age of reason and the rights of man. Caleb was in a difficulty known to any person attempting in dark times and unassisted by miracle to reason with rustics who are in possession of an undeniable truth which they know through a hard process of feeling, and can let it fall like a giant's club on your neatly carved argument for a social benefit which they do not feel. Caleb had no cant at command, even if he could have chosen to use it, and he had been accustomed to meet all such difficulties in no other way than by doing his business faithfully. He answered, "'If you don't think well of me, Tim, never mind. That's neither here nor there now. Things may be bad for the poor man, bad they are, but I want the lads here not to do what will make things worse for themselves. The cattle may have a heavy load, but it won't help em to throw it over into the roadside pit where it's partly their own fodder. "'We were only for a bit of fun,' said Hiram, who was beginning to see consequences. "'That were all we were arter.' "'Well, promise me not to meddle again, and I'll see that nobody informs against you.' "'I never meddled, and I ain't no call to promise,' said Timothy. "'No, but the rest. Come, I'm as hard at work as any of you to-day, and I can't spare much time.' Say you'll be quiet without the constable. Ah, we won't meddle. They may do as they like for us, were the forms in which Caleb got his pledges, and then he hastened back to Fred, who had followed him, and watched him in the gateway. They went to work, and Fred helped vigorously. His spirits had risen, and he hardly enjoyed a good slip in the moist earth under the hedgerow, which soiled his perfect summer trousers. Was it his successful onset which had elated him, or the satisfaction of helping Mary's father? Something more. The accidents of the morning had helped his frustrated imagination to shape an employment for himself which had several attractions. I am not sure that certain fibres in Mr. Garth's mind had not resumed their old vibration towards the very end which now revealed itself to Fred for the effect of accident is but a touch of fire when there is oil and tow, and it always appeared to Fred that the railway brought the needed touch. But they went on in silence, except when their business demanded speech. At last, when they had finished and were walking away, Mr. Garth said, "'A young fellow needn't be a B.A. to do this sort of work, eh, Fred?' "'I wish I had taken to it before I had thought of being a B.A.' said Fred. He paused a moment, and then added, more hesitatingly, "'Do you think I am too old to learn your business, Mr. Garth?' "'My business is of many sorts, my boy,' said Mr. Garth, smiling. "'A good deal of what I know can only come from experience. You can't learn it off as you learn things out of a book. But you are young enough to lay a foundation yet.' Caleb pronounced the last sentence emphatically, but paused in some uncertainty. 
he had been under the impression lately that Fred had made up his mind to enter the church. "'You do think I could do some good at it if I were to try?' said Fred, more eagerly. "'That depends,' said Caleb, turning his head on one side and lowering his voice, with the air of a man who felt himself to be saying something deeply religious. "'You must be sure of two things. You must love your work, and must not always be looking over the edge of it, wanting your play to begin.' And the other is, you must not be ashamed of your work, and think it would be more honorable to you to be doing something else. You must have a pride in your work, and in learning to do it well, and not always be saying, there's this and there's that. If I had this or that to do, I might make something of it. No matter what a man is, I wouldn't give twopence for him. Here Caleb's mouth looked bitter, and he snapped his fingers whether he was the prime minister or the rick-thatcher, if he didn't do well what he undertook to do. "'I can never feel that I should do that in being a clergyman,' said Fred, meaning to take a step in argument. "'Then let it alone, my boy,' said Caleb abruptly, "'else you'll never be easy. Or if you are easy, you'll be a poor stick.' "'That is very nearly what Mary thinks about it,' said Fred, colouring. I think you must know what I feel for Mary, Mr. Garth. I hope it does not displease you that I have always loved her better than any one else, and that I shall never love any one as I love her. The expression of Caleb's face was visibly softening while Fred spoke, but he swung his head with a solemn slowness and said, That makes things more serious, Fred, if you want to take Mary's happiness into your keeping. "'I know that, Mr. Garth,' said Fred, eagerly. "'And I would do anything for her. "'She says she will never have me if I go into the church, "'and I shall be the most miserable devil in the world "'if I lose all hope of Mary. "'Really, if I could get some other profession, business, "'anything that I am fit for, I would work hard, "'I would deserve your good opinion. "'I should like to have to do with outdoor things. "'I know a good deal about land and cattle already.' I used to believe, you know, though you will think me rather foolish for it, that I should have land of my own. I am sure knowledge of that sort would come easily to me, especially if I could be under you in any way. Softly, my boy, said Caleb, having the image of Susan before his eyes. What have you said to your father about all this? Nothing yet, but I must tell him. I am only waiting to know what I can do instead of entering the church. I am very sorry to disappoint him, but a man ought to be allowed to judge for himself when he is four-and-twenty. How could I know, when I was fifteen, what it would be right for me to do now? My education was a mistake. But hearken to this, Fred, said Caleb. Are you sure Mary is fond of you, or would ever have you? I asked Mr. Fairbrother to talk to her, because she had forbidden me. I didn't know what else to do, said Fred, apologetically and he says that I have every reason to hope if I can put myself in an honorable position. I mean, out of the church, I dare say you think it unwarrantable in me, Mr. Garth, to be troubling you and obtruding my own wishes about Mary, before I have done anything at all for myself. Of course I have not the least claim. Indeed, I have already a debt to you which will never be discharged, even when I have been able to pay it in the shape of money. Yes, my boy, you have a claim said Caleb, with much feeling in his voice, 
the young ones always have a claim on the old to help them forward. I was young myself once and had to do without much help, but help would have been welcome to me, if it had only been for the fellow-feeling's sake. But I must consider. Come to me to-morrow at the office at nine o'clock, at the office, mind. Mr. Garth would take no important step without consulting Susan, but it must be confessed that before he reached home he had taken his resolution. With regard to a large number of matters about which other men are decided or obstinate, he was the most easily manageable man in the world. He never knew what meat he would choose, and if Susan had said that they ought to live in a four-roomed cottage in order to save, he would have said let us go, without inquiring into details. But where Caleb's feeling and judgment strongly pronounced, he was a ruler, and in spite of his mildness and timidity in reproving, every one about him knew that, on the exceptional occasions when he chose, he was absolute. He never, indeed, chose to be absolute, except on someone else's behalf. On ninety-nine points Mrs. Garth decided, but on the hundredth she was often aware that she would have to perform the singularly difficult task of carrying out her own principle, and to make herself subordinate. "'It has come round as I thought, Susan,' said Caleb, when they were seated alone in the evening. He had already narrated the adventure which had brought about Fred's sharing in his work, but had kept back the further result. "'The children are fond of each other—I mean, Fred and Mary.' Mrs. Garth laid her work on her knee, and fixed her penetrating eyes anxiously on her husband. "'After we'd done our work, Fred poured it out all to me. He can't bear to be a clergyman, and Mary says she won't have him if he is one, and the lad would like to be under me and give his mind to business, and I've determined to take him and make a man of him.' "'Caleb!' said Mrs. Garth, in a deep contralto, expressive of resigned astonishment. "'It's a fine thing to do,' said Mr. Garth, settling himself firmly against the back of his chair and grasping the elbows. "'I shall have trouble with him, but I think I shall carry it through. The lad loves Mary, and a true love for a good woman is a great thing, Susan. It shapes many a rough fellow.' "'Has Mary spoken to you on the subject?' said Mrs. Garth, secretly a little hurt that she had to be informed on it herself. "'Not a word.' I asked her about Fred once, I gave her a bit of warning, but she assured me that she would never marry an idle, self-indulgent man, nothing since. But it seems Fred set on Mr. Fairbrother to talk to her, because she had forbidden him to speak himself, and Mr. Fairbrother has found out that she is fond of Fred, but says he must not be a clergyman. Fred's heart is fixed on Mary, that I can see. It gives me a good opinion of the lad and we always liked him, Susan. "'It's a pity for Mary, I think,' said Mrs. Garth. "'Why a pity?' "'Because, Caleb, she might have had a man who is worth twenty Fred Vincy's.' "'Ah!' said Caleb, with surprise. "'I firmly believe that Mr. Fairbrother is attached to her, and meant to make her an offer. But, of course, now that Fred has used him as an envoy, there is an end to that better prospect.' There was a severe precision in Mrs. Garth's utterance. She was vexed and disappointed, but she was bent on abstaining from useless words. 
Caleb was silent a few moments under a conflict of feelings. He looked at the floor and moved his head and hands in accompaniment to some inward argumentation. At last he said, "'That would have made me very proud and happy, Susan, and I should have been glad for your sake. I've always felt that your belongings have never been on a level with you, but you took me, though I was a plain man.' "'I took the best and cleverest man I had ever known,' said Mrs. Garth, convinced that she would never have loved any one who came short of that mark. "'Well, perhaps others thought you might have done better. But it would have been worse for me. And that is what touches me close about Fred. The lad is good at bottom, and clever enough to do, if he's put in the right way. And he loves and honors my daughter beyond anything.' and she has given him a sort of promise, according to what he turns out. I say that young man's soul is in my hand, and I'll do the best I can for him, so help me God. It's my duty, Susan. Mrs. Garth was not given to tears, but there was a large one rolling down her face before her husband had finished. It came from the pressure of various feelings, in which there was much affection and some vexation. She wiped it away quickly, saying, "'Few men besides you would think it a duty to add to their anxieties in that way, Caleb.' "'That signifies nothing, what other men would think. I've got a clear feeling inside me, and that I shall follow. And I hope your heart will go with me, Susan, in making everything as light as can be to marry, poor child.' Caleb, leaning back in his chair, looked with anxious appeal towards his wife. She rose and kissed him, saying, "'God bless you, Caleb. Our children have a good father.' But she went out and had a hearty cry to make up for the suppression of her words. She felt sure that her husband's conduct would be misunderstood, and about Fred she was rational and unhopeful. What would turn out to have more foresight in it? Her rationality? or Caleb's ardent generosity. When Fred went to the office the next morning, there was a test to be gone through which he was not prepared for. "'Now, Fred,' said Caleb, "'you will have some desk work. I have always done a good deal of writing myself, but I can't do without help, and as I want you to understand the accounts and get the values into your head, I mean to do without another clerk. So you must buckle too.' How are you at writing and arithmetic? Fred felt an awkward movement of the heart. He had not thought of desk work, but he was in a resolute mood and not going to shrink. I'm not afraid of arithmetic, Mr. Garth. It always came easily to me. I think you know my writing. Let us see, said Caleb, taking up a pen, examining it carefully and handing it, well dipped, to Fred with a sheet of ruled paper. Copy me a line or two of that valuation, with the figures at the end. At that time the opinion existed that it was beneath a gentleman to write legibly, or with a hand in the least suitable to a clerk. Fred wrote the lines demanded in a hand as gentlemanly as that of any viscount or bishop of the day. The vowels were all alike, and the consonants only distinguishable as turning up or down. The strokes had a blotted solidity and the letters disdained to keep the line. In short, it was a manuscript of that venerable kind, easy to interpret when you know beforehand what the writer means. 
As Caleb looked on, his visage showed a growing depression. But when Fred handed him the paper, he gave something like a snarl, and wrapped the paper passionately with the back of his hand. Bad work like this dispelled all Caleb's mildness. "'The deuce!' he exclaimed snarlingly. "'To think that this is a country where a man's education may cost hundreds and hundreds, and turns you out this!' Then, in a more pathetic tone, pushing up his spectacles and looking at the unfortunate scribe, "'The Lord have mercy on us, Fred. I can't put up with this.' "'What can I do, Mr. Garth?' said Fred whose spirits had sunk very low, not only at the estimate of his handwriting, but at the vision of himself as liable to be ranked with office clerks. Do? Why, you must learn to form your letters and keep the line. What's the use of writing at all if nobody can understand it? asked Caleb, energetically, quite preoccupied with the bad quality of the work. Is there so little business in the world that you must be sending puzzles over the country? but that's the way people are brought up. I should lose no end of time with the letters some people send me, if Susan did not make them out for me. It's disgusting. Here Caleb tossed the paper from him. Any stranger peeping into the office at that moment might have wondered what was the drama between the indignant man of business and the fine-looking young fellow whose blond complexion was getting rather patchy as he bit his lip with mortification. Fred was struggling with many thoughts. Mr. Garth had been so kind and encouraging at the beginning of their interview that gratitude and hopefulness had been at a high pitch, and the downfall was proportionate. He had not thought of desk-work. In fact, like the majority of young gentlemen, he wanted an occupation which should be free from disagreeables. I cannot tell what might have been the consequences if he had not distinctly promised himself that he would go to Lowick and see Mary, and tell her that he was engaged to work under her father. He did not like to disappoint himself there. "'I am very sorry,' were all the words that he could muster. But Mr. Garth was already relenting. "'We must make the best of it, Fred,' he began, with a return to his usual quiet tone. "'Every man can learn to write. I taught myself. Go at it with a will.' and sit up at night if the daytime isn't enough. We'll be patient, my boy. Callum shall go on with the books for a bit while you are learning. But now I must be off, said Caleb, rising. You must let your father know our agreement. You'll save me Callum's salary, you know, when you can write, and I can afford to give you eighty pounds for the first year, and more after. When Fred made the necessary disclosure to his parents, the relative effect on the two was a surprise which entered very deeply into his memory. He went straight from Mr. Garth's office to the warehouse, rightly feeling that the more respectful way in which he could behave to his father was to make the painful communication as gravely and formally as possible. Moreover, the decision would be more certainly understood to be final if the interview took place in his father's gravest hours which were always those spent in his private room at the warehouse. Fred entered on the subject directly, and declared briefly what he had done and was resolved to do, expressing at the end his regret that he should be the cause of disappointment to his father, and taking the blame on his own deficiencies. The regret was genuine, and inspired Fred with strong, simple words. 
Mr. Vincy listened in profound surprise without uttering even an exclamation, a silence which in his impatient temperament was a sign of unusual emotion. He had not been in good spirits about trade that morning, and the slight bitterness in his lips grew intense as he listened. When Fred had ended, there was a pause of nearly a minute, during which Mr. Vincy replaced a book in his desk and turned the key emphatically. Then he looked at his son steadily and said, "'So you've made up your mind at last, sir?' "'Yes, father.' "'Very well. Stick to it. I've no more to say. You've thrown away your education and gone down a step in life when I had given you the means of rising. That's all.' "'I am very sorry that we differ, father. I think I can be quite as much of a gentleman at the work I have undertaken as if I had been a curate but I am grateful to you for wishing to do the best for me. Very well, I have no more to say. I wash my hands of you. I only hope, when you have a son of your own, he will make a better return for the pains you spend on him. This was very cutting to Fred. His father was using that unfair advantage possessed by us all when we are in a pathetic situation and see our own past as if it were simply part of the pathos. In reality, Mr. Vincy's wishes about his son had had a great deal of pride, inconsiderateness, and egoistic folly in them. But still the disappointed father held a strong lever, and Fred felt as if he were being banished with a malediction. "'I hope you will not object to my remaining at home, sir,' he said, after rising to go. "'I shall have a sufficient salary to pay for my board, as, of course, I should wish to do.' "'Board be hanged!' said Mr. Vincy, recovering himself in his disgust at the notion that Fred's keep would be missed at his table. "'Of course your mother will want you to stay. But I shall keep no horse for you, you understand, and you will pay your own tailor. You will do with a suit or two less, I fancy, when you have to pay for him.' Fred lingered. There was still something to be said. At last it came. I hope you will shake hands with me, father, and forgive the vexation I have caused you. Mr. Vincy, from his chair, threw a quick glance upward at his son, who had advanced near to him, and then gave his hand, saying hurriedly, Yes, yes, let us say no more. Fred went through much more narrative and explanation with his mother, but she was inconsolable, having before her eyes what perhaps her husband had never thought of, the certainty that Fred would marry Mary Garth, that her life would henceforth be spoiled by a perpetual infusion of Garths and their ways, and that her darling boy, with his beautiful face and stylish air, beyond anybody else's son in Middlemarch, would be sure to get like that family in plainness of appearance and carelessness about his clothes. To her it seemed that there was a Garth conspiracy to get possession of the desirable Fred, but she dared not enlarge on this opinion, because a slight hint of it had made him fly out at her, as he had never done before. Her temper was too sweet for her to show any anger, but she felt that her happiness had received a bruise, and for several days merely to look at Fred had made her cry a little as if he were the subject of some baleful prophecy. Perhaps she was the slower to recover her usual cheerfulness, 
because Fred had warned her that she must not reopen the sore question with his father, who had accepted his decision and forgiven him. If her husband had been vehement against Fred, she would have been urged into defense of her darling. It was the end of the fourth day when Mr. Vincy said to her, "'Come, Lucy, my dear, don't be so downhearted. You always have spoiled the boy, and you must go on spoiling him.' "'Nothing ever did cut me so before, Vincy,' said the wife, her fair throat and chin beginning to tremble again. "'Only his illness.' "'Pooh, pooh, never mind. We must expect to have trouble with our children. Don't make it worse by letting me see you out of spirits.' "'Well, I won't,' said Mrs. Vincy, roused by this appeal and adjusting herself with the little shake as of a bird which lays down its ruffled plumage. "'It won't do to begin making a fuss about one,' said Mr. Vincy, wishing to combine a little grumbling with domestic cheerfulness. There's Rosamond as well as Fred. Yes, poor thing. I'm sure I felt for her being disappointed of her baby. But she got over it nicely. Baby, poof! I can see Lydgate is making a mess of his practice, and getting into debt, too, by what I hear. I shall have Rosamond coming to me with a pretty tale one of these days. But they'll get no money from me, I know. Let his family help him. I never did like that marriage. But it's no use talking. Ring the bell for lemons, and don't look dull any more, Lucy. I'll drive you and Louisa to Riverston tomorrow. End of chapter 56「BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.